a couple of just housekeeping. Sorry, a couple of housekeeping. It would be good if everybody turned their cell phones off or disabled them or whatever you do. I don't know if we had anybody on Zoom, but in the off chance we do, I'd appreciate it if they put themselves on mute. Mute. Um, this particular set of proceedings was in fact advertised in the paper and is posted in the county building. We don't really have a petition to deal with, so to that extent, I'm gonna skip past the rest of the notifications. Um, with that thought in mind, I'd like to call to order the uh, joint session of the Route County Planning Commission, the BC Board of County Commissioners of today, July 26th, um, 2023. Rather than do a roll call, it's probably simpler and more straightforward if we just start with Commissioner Norris. He can announce himself, and obviously he's part of the PC, but perhaps just go right down the table so everybody presents themselves and their affiliation, and it makes life a little bit easier. So, Commissioner Norris, you start. Bill Norris, Planning Commission. Perfect. Brian Keller, Planning Commission. Planning Commissioner. Always Planning Commission. Planning Commission. Ryan Martin, Planning Commission. Tim Carr, County Commissioner. Sonny Macy's, County Commissioner. Jim DeFrancia, Planning Commission. Lenny Sal, Assistant County Attorney. Uh, Alan Goldich, Planning Staff. Jessica Garrow, Design Workshop. Christy Windsor, Planning Department. <laughs> Michael Fitz, Planning. Steve Warnke, Planning. Linda Miller, Planning. Tim Redman, County Commissioner. Jay Harrington, County Manager. I'm responsible for this guy's He wants Thank that you. direct view. <laughs> Which, by the no, we're not going to go there, right? So we'll leave them alone. Um, public comment is the first item on the agenda. Uh, if there's anyone from the public that wishes to address the commissions and commissioners on any item that is not on the agenda, now is the time to do so. Seeing and hearing none, we'll move right on to the next agenda, which is consent agenda. The reality of life is there really is nothing on the consent agenda, so we're going to move right on past that to the items for consideration. Um, and principally, Christy, I'm turning it over to you because I think you're the leader here. Now. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm the leader here. Um, so thank you everybody for being here for our work session to discuss module one. Um, you have your very detailed staff reports, um, that have all four sections we're going to be talking about tonight, the intro, the agency section as well as our uh, proposed solar regulations, which is a brand new section to the code, as well as the overlays, um, which is intended to support our tiered framework approach for development out in the county. Um, <clears throat> at this point, I'm gonna turn it over to Jessica to walk us through and we're going to have her mainly do most of the presentation for efficiency purposes and staff will chime in. We're going to have um, points where we'll pause and we're going to be looking for direction um, from the decision makers, all of you, on specifics. The intent is that we are not going to go line by line. You're welcome. 
Um, but instead, we are going to highlight changes in the existing regulations and points that we're definitely going to want to get direction from you all on. I'd also ask that, um, you know, the the draft that was provided to you was essentially a 50% draft, if you will, and we really want to um, get direction from all of you on some key points, as I mentioned. Um, we know that there are probably um, some typos or maybe some um, smaller items that um, instead of bringing those to our attention, just so we can get through this tonight, to email me directly um, a red line draft of things that maybe you have noticed. If you have specific questions, obviously that's appropriate for tonight's discussion. Uh, some of you reached out to me beforehand, which I appreciated to answer some of your questions and you know make some clarifying points on, on some of the um, sections of what we're presenting here tonight. Um, so with that, um, I'm going to put it over to Jessica to get us started. So thank you. Um, and I just wanted to highlight that um, Riley Timmons from our team is also online and she's um, taking notes and, um, you know, she may, may chime in. So I don't want that to be a surprise if she does that. Um, can I just find out, is there anybody else that's on too? Um, we have one person that has joined, um, Becky Zimmerman is on the line from the public. Okay. 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 Great. So, uh, tonight we wanted to start really high level, um, give a background of where we've been, where we're going. Um, and then we wanted to dive into the module one code updates and, uh, complete the discussion with some next steps, um, conversation. Um, as Christy said, we've got a couple of sections to run through, um, really looking forward to the conversation tonight. Um, we know that the overlay districts are pretty heavy lift, and we wanted to provide some information and language for you all tonight with the anticipation that that's actually going to be completed in module two um, when we get into the more meat of the zone districts as well. So we're eager for your feedback there. Um, but we think kind of following this meeting, um, we'll listen to your direction, particularly for introduction agencies and solar energy, so that we can then move that into an adoption process. And we'll talk about that a little bit at the end. So um, really quickly, background, um, you can see here, we have divided the work into modules. Um, we are in module one, where we focus primarily on solar energy and then trying to begin that conversation on overlay districts and a conversation on agencies. Um, in module two, we'll move into the zone districts and the use table, um, as well as uh, PUD process. And then module three is subdivisions, definitions, and enforcement. There's lots of other code sections that we'll be covering with you that are really the highlights um, within module one, two, and three. So tonight, we'll cover module one. You can see here, this is our anticipated schedule um, where we have broken this into trying to be kind of more manageable pieces and expecting uh, public hearings in the fall into the winter to try to wrap this up um, by no later than, than January. If we can do it by the end of this year, I think that, that's also a goal. And I would just point out that that public hearing section and why it goes into January is on the off chance we'd wanted to give some cushion room, if you will, if there needs to be more discussion on specific uh, topics 
that we built that into the overall um, uh, project plan. The goal is to finish this calendar year. Okay. So we have done um, engagement uh, with the community to date, and we just wanted to highlight that here. Um, Navigate Your Route was used during the master plan process, and we've continued to use that here um, for the code update. And so um, there's information on the process. Um, we, we have a pulse survey out right now, um, and we'll have other pulse surveys that can all be accessed from Navigate Your Route. Um, we've held a number of stakeholder workshops and some technical working group meetings. That technical working group is a continuation from the master plan process. We've done a deep dive with staff, and we've had some community um, pop-ups and, and workshops. So um, really high level, uh, some feedback that we've heard from the working groups specific to solar and the overlays. Um, for solar, we got into some of the details um, with that group and, and really trying to understand what are some of the key performance standards, if you will, that are needed for, uh, for solar regulations. And so uh, real clear direction from, from that group, as well as from the community feedback quickly that um, we want to allow solar, but there needs to be some guardrails, if you will, and, and a review process uh, for that um, with some performance standards, bonding standards, decommissioning plans, things like that. Um, from the overlay uh, perspective, we um, have heard from the working group um, some important um, items related to identifying appropriate density relative to the available infrastructure. So we'll talk about that when we get to that section um, with you. And then um, some prioritization of uh, commercial outdoor recreation standards, particularly in stagecoach and um, conversations related to workforce housing and, and community housing. Um, from community engagement, as I said, um, a lot of support from the, from the community as we've gone through this process relative to solar. Um, and wanting to get some clarity on the definition around solar. So we're going to start there tonight. Um, and then on the uh, tiers from the community engagement, um, a couple of key points uh, supporting those centralized commercial districts and amenities, particularly in stagecoach, but really in any of those tier two areas. Uh, support broadly for affordable housing. Um, and interest in ensuring public access to amenities and outdoor recreation users. So those are some of the, the highlights that we've heard from the community engagement. So I'm going to dive into module one. We're going to start with the introduction and agency. These are relatively short um, chapters, but are important uh, in terms of the overall administration of the code. So from the introduction, uh, we are, if you recall from our last conversation, we're combining the zoning and the subdivision regulations into one document that's going to be called the Unified Development Code. So it just defines this is a Unified Development Code. How is it to throughout the rest of the code? Um, we have some clear applicability statements indicating that it is incorporating any applicable state statutes. Um, it applies to everything within unincorporated route counties, it applies to all land uses and all structures. Um, subdivisions uh, applicability is included in here with the exception, um, and this is written in the language, 35 acre subdivisions per um, SB 35. So we wanted to make sure that that kind of legal piece was, was correct, and we've uh, done a lot of work with uh, the attorney's office to make sure that that um, met the state standards. 
Um, also in this chapter is a link to the master plan and identifying some of the key purpose statements and incorporating by reference the master plan and some other things. The agency's chapter um, is also um, an important one. It establishes just the overall powers and duties for all of the regulatory bodies within Route County. And so this is a little bit different than your code today. It tries to pull all of the different bodies together into one chapter so that there's a lot of clarity there. Um, so it includes um, sort of planning director. It identifies the powers and duties, um, including the enforcement and administration of the new code. Um, this section also establishes the code compliance officer to help assist in enforcement um, for the UDC. And the planning director can serve as the code compliance officer, or that could be a separate position, or it can be delegated. Um, also identifies the role of the floodplain administrator. So that exists right now in your floodplain section. It's getting pulled over into, into this chapter. Um, next group is the Board of County Commissioners. Um, and it really is just trying to codify all of the existing powers that the um, county commissioners have. Um, it states that the county commissioners are responsible for any actions that are not specifically delegated to the planning commission, board of adjustment, and the planning director. Um, we've also added some language uh, kind of coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is something we've, we've seen in communities and, and I think makes sense here, allowing an, in times of natural disaster or acts of God that certain sections of the UDC by um, resolution from the board of county commissioners um, you can override those those specific provisions as needed. So that that's something that we want to talk about. Um, for planning commission, it codifies those membership requirements. Um, it really is very similar uh, to what exists today. Um, commissioners are appointed by the county commissioners, and then the planning commission uh, selects the chair and the vice chair as part of their meeting. Um, and we've identified the specific development review authorities that the commission has. Um, similarly, Board of Adjustment, uh, same regulations that exist today, um, and specifically defines the authority related to variances. Um, one new piece is pulling forward the Historic Preservation Board um, duties and powers that have already been established by the Board of County Commissioners. And we wanted to do that in anticipation of some work that's going to happen probably in module three relative to potential creation of a historic preservation chapter. So this was clear direction from the master plan about the importance of historic preservation. And so we wanted to, in, in module one, just set up the opportunity for, depending on the direction that the county commissioners and the planning commission want to go, that we would be able to add that um, those authorities in into this chapter. This is not going to be where I'm going to pause first and see what questions you have, what feedback do you have about um, these two chapters, and then specifically this um, adjustment. We know that historic preservation board piece is a little bit different, um, so we wanted to see if you've got any comments on on that piece. Are there any downsides to doing the UDC? Um, we don't think so. Um, <laughs> I think, I was, yeah, I, I wouldn't thought so either. But yeah, cool. I would say it's it's pretty customary to do a UDC these days. Um, I think we're, we have been pretty unique in having two separate uh, zoning and subdivision regulations right. that have been separate. So we're modernizing our codes. 
is the historic board set up with geographic location seats on that board, or is it more of a general board? General board, and who appoints to that board? So yeah, county commissioners appointed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I it's I don't believe there are. Yeah, I don't think that there are any goals right now relative to the geographic makeup of um, the folks that, that serve on that. Christy, did anything in this change the authorities from different boards? Is that that was It did not. Um, and Renee, I don't know if there was anything that jumped out to you on this section. I know you and Eric um, were part of the the fun reviewing this this section, um, but I mean, there's nothing that jumped out to you that has like changed that were major changes. It no, was really I saw it as a bringing forward and yeah, I'm leading the language. Planning director role. Of that yeah. definition, um, there, there's nothing new in there except for the code enforcement piece, which we never had a code compliance officer in the past, so we obviously wanted to bring that into this chapter. How does a code compliance officer increase our capacity in code enforcement compared to what we're doing now? So it it helps create kind of a, a, a more clear authority to go out and do enforcement, which we all know can, can sometimes be pretty difficult. And sometimes folks say, well, where does it specifically say? And now you've got a place where this is where it specifically says. So that individual won't have any special authority. It's just the definition of their role. Yeah. Yes. And so, yeah, just it, it's, it has the potential to be sensitive to certain people in the community. <laughs> the, the idea is want to make sure that we've not created a position that has this new range of powers. I mean, what the language that is in there has been um, already outlined by the attorney's office and has been, you know, in an internal policy. Now it's just being brought into the regulations. It's not changing anything about how we conduct code enforcement. Right. It's just putting it that authority into the regulations. Okay. And when we get challenged on it, we can point to the section to show what the duties are and what the process is. Okay. I have two questions on the both um, planning commission and the starting reservation. They both refer to the fact that they should establish their own bylaws. Does, does that happen? Hasn't happened? And they exist somewhere. I don't think so. Planning Commission has bylaws. Right. Uh, historic preservation is kind of outside of the planning department. So I don't, I don't we are not familiar with that. And where would the planning commission be? Are they public information? They are. Yeah. In um, the handbook you're referring to? I think they are in the, yeah. in the handbook. They're on our. Okay, and then the other question I had is you referred to removal of um, both planning commissioners and historic preservation commissioners. And there appears to be some kind of formal process, like a written notification and a public hearing. Is that better documented anywhere or is it just general? Um, it is in the existing regulations. Um, 
or is that actually in the handbook? I think it's in the handbook. It's in I the think handbook. all that's in the handbook. Yeah. So there's the Planning Commission and the Board of Adjustment handbooks okay. that are on the planning website. Um, and so we brought that forth, put in the regulations of what that process is. Okay, and that hasn't been changed. And it's a pretty standard process mm -hmm. for the local governments. And an example is if you've got a commissioner who's just not showing up to meetings, that there's a process to remove that person and appoint someone who will show up to meetings if you just want to do that. So, yeah, I mean, we can do that now. Yeah, I just didn't know what the reference documents were because yeah. it made reference to things that I don't think. The other question I have, and I hate to even ask this because I suspect it's a Linnea question that I might not even understand the answer, but section 1.4, where we start talking about the subdivisions mm -hmm. and you know what is accepted, C one, two, and three are just sort of way over my head. Can somebody put those in plain language that what is that actually saying? Is it just saying that? It doesn't apply to parcels greater than 35 acres. That's yeah, that's pretty yeah. much it. Yeah. yeah. And and fortunately or unfortunately, that language comes from the statute. Um thanks. Yeah, I have a quick question about UDC. Yeah. When you were talking about act of God or a yeah. natural disaster. It could be suspended. Um, would that be partial or in total? How would that work? What, what do you mean? Well, say, say, you know, and I think what I'm thinking of, what comes to my mind is the Marshall Fire. Oh, yes. You know, okay. and then they had just enhanced their building codes mm -hmm. so that these people would right. have not been able to build back to the standards that their original right. homes were. Um, and it was going to create some problems. But at the same time, right, can you do that in a certain area or would that be countywide, I guess is what I'm asking. How would that, how would that go down? I think it gives the flexibility to the commissioners to make that decision. I mean, it's yeah. pretty broad. Yeah, it's, okay. it's written very openly. So, so you could suspend one aspect mm -hmm. of the UDC you could suspend the entire UDC for one specific area. Okay. So it, it, it's really up to you and, and depending on the situation. Thank you. That, that was a clarification I was looking for. Moving on? Yep. Okay, great. All right, we're gonna get into solar energy next. Um, starting with the definitions um, included in the draft are definitions of the different types of solar energy systems, as well as some um, more technical definitions of, of what do we mean when, when we think about solar, um, solar energy. Uh, we're gonna focus tonight on the systems definitions and some of the, the adjustments that um, are contemplated there. Uh, the technical definitions are pretty standard, um, but again, if you've got questions or, or comments or words to think, um, you know, please feel free to send that to Christine. So we are defining three different scales of solar energy uh, within the code. And the first is small scale solar energy systems. These are really residential systems. These are what you would typically see on someone's um, individual home on their roof. 
Um, they might be ground mounted, so on the ground, but um, it's really just for that private um, homeowner. That process today is administrative and it stays administrative. Um, we'll, we'll go into that in, in the next slide. Sorry, small scale is used by right. All you need is building permit. Correct. If you need a variance to the setback standards, which we'll get into later, that's the variance that she was referring to. Um, so that's small scale. So very much the same as, as exists today. Um, then we're going to find a question about that. Um, what if, uh, and I'm trying to kind of study it earlier, uh, what if two neighbors, like separate persons, wanted to share a solar array? Is that okay? Uh, that would be okay by Route County. Not by YBA. Not by YBA. Okay. Thank you. Other question too. How, how big is small? Five number of panels or square So small scale is not defined by number of panels, wattage, or um, acres. It's defined by it's one parcel, and it's only for the use on that parcel. So it's really about the use of that energy that's generated. So the difference is what we get into community scale and utility scale. It's where you start to have solar that is available off parcel. So community scale is anything up to 20 acres, and it's used um, by, a, by an area, by a number of residents or a number of different businesses. And then utility scale is anything that's 20 acres and more, where it's typically going to retail or wholesale. But the size of a small scale solar energy system, those private ones, would be dictated by YBA. They put, they put maximum sizes on residential solar facilities and commercial solar facilities. So that's the size is dictated by that. Why did you choose the 20 acres? Yeah, good, really good question. Um, we did a lot of um, work in terms of just a literature review of, of what are some typical standards. Um, and we also uh, did a deep dive with some of the folks in our working group. Um, we originally, I think, had come forward with 50 acres and we just started sort of talked about that and that 20 acres is more of an industry standard um, and felt like the appropriate um, cutoff at that 20 acres. On, that, on the community one, does that have to exist on a separate parcel from the users? Or in the instance that Tim mentioned, two people sharing it technically meets the definition of a community solar array, even though YBA might, might discourage it. So, yeah. you know, does it have to exist separately from the parcels or can it be on one of the parcels? It could be either. It could be either. Yeah. Yeah. So then how, how do you get around YBA? Okay, sorry well, uh, basically, there are a couple of different ways. Um, one, we are going to the legislation to propose, which is virtual net mirroring, which is mentioned in this. Um, that is where, for example, Rat County has 45 meters, and the maximum capacity that YDA allows for is 25 kW per meter. We can take our 25 multiplied by 45, and we can get a larger system that we can then tie to the grid. 
and send back to uh, our facilities through the grid. And so one way of doing that virtual net metering is a legislative fix because we're elected cooperatives to set their own standards on that. And why has chosen to have a policy that does not encourage this. Um, but investor on the municipal utilities for the XLs and the municipals, they are required to offer this option. Um, the second fix is um, uh, uh, qualifying facilities. So qualifying facility, this relates to some of the language that's in here regarding YBA, is an entirely different process that does not even take into consideration the utility. And you can do the same thing that I'm talking about, which is aggregate meters and have a larger scale array. But you go through a purpose process, which is the Public Utilities and Regulatory Production Act or whatever it's called. Um, but it's an entirely different process that doesn't even engage the utility. So you go through different regulatory agencies. Those are at present really the only two ways that this can be done in our area anyway. Is that set up conflict in the future? Yeah. It's moving targets. Um, Not that I can't, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, Andy, I don't think so because we're looking at the land use impacts, right? So right. we're not we're not looking at how it ties in or supplies the grid or how it gets used or how it gets built or tracked or any of that. We're strictly looking at the land use. As long as we stay in our lane, we're, yeah. Right. Um, I assume these solar regulations contemplate. Uh, Typical photovoltaic cells. What about other forms of solar energy production? Think reflecting mirrors that focus on a point. That's that's a good question. <laughs> and I think so. We might have to ponder if I. Um, so the regulations apply to any type of solar. And so when we talk about visual impacts and um, access construction impacts, I mean, all of those things would apply regardless of the specific type of solar that is used. So um, I think maybe as we go through this, I'm not familiar with that type of technology, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, that's typically a large scale yeah. utility installation. Right. Yeah. Typically yeah. in Nevada. And I think the technology, I don't know that it's keeping, but I, I think they're pursuing different avenues. Like that's one technique, but I don't know that it's as efficient or cost effective, and the impacts are more. So I don't know that many. I just want to make sure that we have less kind of movement that somebody could drive through. And as Sonia just said, yeah. these things can be extremely tall. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so so all of the regulations that we're going to go through would apply regardless. We have a definition of solar energy systems, which is not specific to it only being a panel. Yeah. Make sure that it, it doesn't say panel in that. It talks about generating power. And, and so I think we're covered, but um, we can make sure we take another look. Mm -hmm. So we're going to find limitations in the standards? Yes, yeah. 25 yeah. feet. Yep. I'm going to keep going so we can get to some of the <coughs> No, it's, it's great. Um, uh, so we wanted to um, talk through the review process for the different scales of solar. So small scale, that residential scale, um, as Alan said, it's a buy right use in all zone districts. You just go and get your building permit. So that's the same as it is today. 
Um, if you wanted to modify some of your setbacks, which we'll get to on the next slide, um, the way the language is written right now is that that would require a BOA variance. We have a question for this group of if that should be a BOA variance or an administrative um, variation process. Um, because so, currently it's an administrative process. Right. It doesn't have to go to board adjustment. We'll dig into that on the next slide. Um, so then with community scale solar, that goes to the planning commission for a conditional use permit approval. The utility scale solar, so the solar that is 20 acres and more, goes to both planning commission and board of county commissioners for a special use permit approval. So why um why are you treating them differently, the community and the utility? The thought is that given the scale, the impacts are different. The review criteria are the same, but the impact um, is is likely smaller on the community scale versus the utility scale, and that the review process should reflect that. So I have a question about the definition. So we're looking at community scale. There are two different things. There's the acreage and there's the use. Utility scale is saying 20 acres or larger. And the use, but you could have a situation where you could have a utility scale in a smaller parcel, or you couldn't. I mean, I guess I'm used to managing this in kilowatt hour terms as opposed to actual bridge yeah. terms. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, what if you have something that wants to be a community for its use and it's 25 acres? Does it get considered as a utility scale? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean those. Terms are just to differentiate between the size. It doesn't. It the it's not meant to dictate what that use is. Okay, I guess the language is pretty much the same. So, yeah. So the uh, twenty acres, you look at other entities. Yeah. The threshold that they. Yeah, there's there's a really good resource from. Um, ICMA, the International City Managers Association, and APA, American Planning Association. And um, you can use either kilowatt hours or size or both. Um, because of the impacts here, we, we went with the size. And 20 acres is a, is a good industry standard. I think that's a really good, really good thing to do because we are fighting under the Side of systems uh, presently, and that's probably going to continue. Well, and the efficiencies are only going to increase, and the impacts come from the size of the facility, <laughs> not how much, uh, how many electrons are getting pumped out of it. Exactly. So that's why we stuck with the yeah, smart <laughs> So are you saying that the, that the parcel has to be 20 acres or small, or just yes. the system? The system. The system. So it's kind of like they have a building. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Would it be possible that the small scale No, that's just not part of that. Yeah. 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 Um, so on that small scale solar piece, um, those residential um, solar units, um, they can be ground mounted or roof mounted. If they're roof mounted, they can exceed the um, height limit by up to five feet or the roof line by up to five feet, whichever is most restrictive. So um, that's just the calculation that would be done as part of the building permit application. Um, it needs to be located to minimize glare visual impacts, again, part of that building permit review. 
for ground mounted solar um, that could impact setback, um, that's where that variance process comes in. So the way the language is written, and this is um, consistent with what exists today, um, you have to meet your zone district setbacks as well as any water body setbacks. Needs to be five feet from your lot line, 45 feet from the center line of the roadway, or 15 feet from the edge of the roadway, whichever is greater. So again, making sure that we're a setback as, as much as possible. Um, a variance with the BOA in the current regulations as I um, proposed to you tonight um, would be a variance to those setback lines through a BOA variance. Um, and I think that is a, a particular piece of a, a question that we, we want to make sure we cover with you is um, there's maybe the potential to reduce setbacks for ground-mounted solar to go through BOA or to leave setbacks as they are and continue with that administrative process. So we wanted to um, get your thoughts on that. You're not going to clarify on that a bit? for administrative. What? Yeah. yeah, I would vote for administrative all day long. Well, so here's the, here's the question here is that currently the standard is property line setbacks or administrative variance down to those those standards, which is up down to five feet. So if you think of the AF zone district going from 50 feet to five feet with an administrative process is pretty is a pretty extreme difference. And so currently we're processing these administrative requests um, that are fairly common because you have you either have a 50 foot setback by right and you can go to a building permit um or you end up asking for whatever you need down to five feet and that's a pretty big difference so our question for you guys is would you guys support some sort of reduction in setbacks to reduce the um amount of requests that we get for a non-buy rights solution meaning you don't you have to do something before you go to building permit our thought was potentially we could do a reduced setback with a BOA variance, and that way people are more likely to want to not do the BOA variance and just go with the the buy right solution. But then you'd need a BOA variance if you if you get beyond that. Or are you comfortable keeping the current language where it's always going to be property line setbacks, which would be 50 feet in AF, but you can still do this administrative down to five feet? But wouldn't the administrator always have the option? To not review it and send it to PC? No, because it wouldn't go to. Could that be an option? I guess is what I'm saying. It could. Our current process allows um, allows me to bump an application up oh, right. if it's something I feel deserves uh, more attention um, or we know it's going to be controversial. Right. So, having been through the DLA for a variance on Ag Street then, and now I'm proud members of this. Project that was a legacy ranch yeah. where we had to go through the DOA process to get a variance for a ground mount solar system that was going to be like 10 feet off of the lot line with an adjacent neighbor who's 100% supportive. Yeah. I can just tell you that it was really quite burdensome and ultimately lengthy and could have actually jeopardized our capacity to install the project. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, given that, I think that what we can do to make this the streamline possible is important because people are doing these things. So in some cases, they're looking at things like tax incentives and grant programs. And, you know, if they get hung up in our processes, the BOA only meets so often or, you know, whatever it is. And I just, I think we should make this as easy as possible. Do you then support reducing setbacks for solar as opposed to a building? And support whatever you guys think is the easiest way for people and for our administrative team. I support administrative keeping the setback the same 
and then you can consider other implications. Neighbor to see on the set on the fifty foot setback also. How do you avoid like the very capricious argument where the decision of the administrator could be questioned? This is this is kind of the problem we're having is that it's a standard, but then it can be reduced all the way down to five feet. And so we're processing administrative variances for things that are fairly often approved. Not always. Five feet might be too generous, perhaps. Um, but that's kind of this is kind of a two-part question. It's it's what should the standard be? And if it needs to be varied, what should the process be? And currently it's property line setbacks or this variance or this administrative variance that goes all the way down to five feet. I think you bring up a good point. 15 feet may be more reasonable in your ability to get through expense, things of that nature. Five feet is too tight for a tractor pulling the wagon, you know, material behind it for fence repair. Um, I, I would be more inclined for 15 feet. So then hypothetically, if you had 15 feet, would you, how would you then have 15 feet and then down to five feet with administrative, or would you say 15 feet is it? 15 feet. Administrative down to 15. But, but in the, <clears throat> the AF, but because it's going to vary, you know, if you're talking, yeah, if you're in, you know, Peberg, Milner, setbacks and five feet was, is in our existing regulations because we're considering all zone districts. So it's either a one size fits all approach, right? Or we have different setbacks for different um, zone districts. Well, then it would go to DOA, anything less than 15, right? Well, we could do we could do something like 15 feet or property line setbacks, whichever is less. And that would that would make sure that AF isn't penalized for being as rural as it is. But then someone in Phippsburg or Milner would have typically 10 feet in this case. Um, but then of course. Currently, someone in Pittsburgh or Milner would have a 10-foot by right because of their property line setbacks and would do administrative to go to, on to five feet as opposed to BOA. So we've toyed with different types of languages and, and it's, you know, we could do like, let's say half of property line setbacks or administrative variants or half of property line setbacks and BOA variants. Um, and, you know, it's starting, obviously this is all kind of getting muddled, but um, give us an example. Yeah, give us more. Um, in the current version that we're, that we're currently operating under or a hypothetical? So currently it's Phippsburg has 15 foot front and rear and 10 foot sides because it's MDR, um, medium density residential. And so it would be either those 15, 15, 10, um, or a administrative variance down to five feet on any of those sides. Okay, I got that. And so, so that's currently what you can do. Yes. Okay. And that might be considered, you know, maybe in denser player places with smaller setbacks, you guys feel that the property line setbacks are appropriate, but in AF it's too much. Um, we just have we have situations where there and there are some non-conforming AF and MRE properties. This is really where these administrative situations come up where. They've got 50 foot setbacks, but they have only two acres and they've got a house that takes up a majority of the space and maybe an area that is undevelopable otherwise. And so they're like, please let us go down to five feet. And our criteria for the administrative reduction is not very stringent. Um, so typically they get approved. So um, our thoughts is, well, is do we consider solar, small scale solar specifically to be as impactful as the building that's on the same property or do we not? And if we don't think it's as impactful, we could potentially reduce setbacks 
Um, but the 50 and five is kind of a huge dichotomy to be handling administratively, especially when it frequently gets approved. So is it a debt concerted structure that's over 30 inches of height? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you're now talking about solar arrays that are four to five or six feet high. Why would it not be subject to the same setback as the deck? Just raising the question. Because when you stack them up, you're I'm looking at the one that we didn't have Craig. I think if you had, I think if you had an answer. Um, I mean, I think one of the things about citing solar arrays is, you know, it's not just a convenience for, you know, looking for a view or anything else. I mean, your property is going to, the aspect of your property is going to determine where you're going to be able to install that thing. And in some cases, you might not be able to install it in a place that's going to maximize the use. And in the case of the Legacy Ranch, for example, you know, that was a historic property and there was only a postage stamp of space that could actually have anything new. And so it was like you were limited to one, only one spot that was that close to the water. Now that's obviously, I think, a unique example, but with the home, you have some preference as to how you decide it and how you orient it, whereas the filler you might not. Yeah, because attached to the structure, the primary structure. Oh, I understand. Uh, well, does that change it? Like, do we think of the solar array for a home more like a shed that is movable? No, because yeah, anything over uh, 120 square feet, right, is considered a structure and they can counter it. So, mounted on the foundation or not, I, I, I believe, then that would be on the foundation. Once I see, yeah, it's very good. And I uh, hear what Sonia's saying about solar is a little different in terms of needs to be specifically cited. But, you know, we I think we need to be aware of the, the things Brent mentioned. You know, I think we, we're, we're getting confused. We're, we're coupled, you know, AF and MDR, you know, yes, let's break it down by the higher density. Exactly. Yeah. I think just to simplify. The conversation is, are you comfortable with how we currently reduce solar? Mm -hmm. I mean, without getting into different zone districts. I mean, are you comfortable? That's Because yeah. I think, you know, the point that was made about, you know, are you going to get challenged? This is becoming an administrative burden because the setbacks are consistently coming to yeah. the problem. I mean, to me, these are, um, you have much bigger fish to fry than whether or not somebody's five or seven feet off the line. Yeah, I, I just think it yeah. probably is a colossal waste of your time, frankly. So, I mean, I'm just, I think we need to go from your guidance as to what we make. You know, what are you relatively consistently seeing for these approvals? And, you know, using that guidance, it's something like Brandon mentioned, a 15 foot automatic, which equipment can get through and then yeah. you know, down to five administratively. Would that alleviate the burden of reviewing these? So, I think we've we haven't processed many of these types of applications, maybe four or five. And I don't know if y'all know, but the county is so smart certified. We're at the silver level. And during that review, this process was in place when we went through that certification. And we got props from the viewers for having that administrative variance instead of having them to go through the full board adjustment variance. So personally, I like how it is, and I would propose to keep it how it currently is. Even in AF where it would go 50 to 5? Uh, yeah, because okay. that would, um, all the adjacent property owners would get noticed, and 
it, it go through the process. And it gets back to if you're not comfortable, you push it up. Yeah. I mean, I'd recommend, you know, based on what we're hearing, um, we can, in the next draft that comes to you all, um, we can take this all and we can highlight that in the conversation and um, and see if you're all okay with it. Um, yes. How does that work with the water body setback? Yeah, that those are separate from they're still subject to water body setbacks. It's the, but that's the property line setback can go down to five feet. Right, but that the water way. body setback cannot because that seems really. There's no administrative water body setback. There is. There is. If you want to encroach with a fifty foot water body <coughs> water body setback, you need a water body setback permit, which is an administrative permit as well. And what and how far down can you go with that setback? Uh, there are there's no criteria for that. It's just showing that there's no other location that it have that it can be that it has to be within this setback because of second constraints. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Do <laughs> 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 don't you? <laughs> I remember. Um, Let's get too far forward. I, I do have to ask one question back to the definitions on. But we want to conclude this and come back to that. So, are we done with this part of the? Do you have what you need? I, I, so. I think we did. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're not proposing any. The, 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 the change that you're proposing is for your standard setbacks. You're not proposing any change to the water like setbacks in the small scale silver. I would say we're gauging your opinion on whether we should modify it. Yes. We will for talk property about line setbacks. We will talk about water body setbacks and but the but the current direction is to basically draft language in the next draft of the regs that would reflect your current process. Correct. Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah. So we're, we're gonna see this again. Before oh just more than once is my guess. Um, my question is related to your definitions and um, microgrids. Mm -hmm. um, did you contemplate microgrids? Do you feel as though the language is inclusive enough for microgrids, or did we put it in specifically? We felt that it covered it. Um, we can go back and take a look to see if there's anything in the community and utility that's not covering microgrids. And just do a confirmation. And, and we had this conversation with the technical working group, and we have reps uh, from YBSC um, uh, on that, uh, on the technical working group, that is. Um, and we had this discussion, and they felt that it was covered. Okay, the only reason I'm asking is that there are some buzzwords that are being thrown around in current language that basically um, some grant opportunities are asking to specifically see where this is allowed for. So it might be even belt and suspenders worth putting in to buzzer. Okay. Okay. One last question about small scale authority. So there is no limitation on the percentage of the overall lot that could be consumed. We have no lot coverage. They would technically, but they would have to be incredibly inefficient because the standard is it powers up to 120% of the buy right use on the lot. So if you're 
if you're lying. Yeah, that's no, that's our our code. Is that up to 120% of the home's consumption can be powered by can be the capacity of the solar array. That's our code. Yeah. It is, and it was based on YDA's previous policy of allowing up to 120%. Now they've changed that to max 10 megawatts for residential community fiber. Yeah, so I mean, there is an unintended consequence there if we're encouraging, trying to encourage solar. And, and let's say YDA changes their rules and really wants to be liberal about net metering, people would like to build bigger arrays and sell that energy back to the grid are we as written there wouldn't be any restriction against that right well the 120 oh. is, is the, is with, the ex, with the exception of the overall size of the facility well, that 120 percent is not written in these proposed regulations right? no, that's in, that's in, so the 120 percent is in the definition of our small scale solar system and that's not supposed to be carried over into these videos. Okay, so that's so, like a non-match. So we don't have any lot coverage standards or area ratio or anything like that. So as long as it meets the requirements, complies with YDA's terms, there would be no limit. So we're limited. Yeah, we're yeah. And I think that the other important piece is that we're trying in this code to focus on things related to land use and really kind of stay in our lane, right? right. Whatever YDA does. YBA does and trying to keep those two things. Yeah, I support getting rid of the 120% limitation. Yeah, I said. Um, since we're on YBA, I'm wondering if we need to specifically name them, name them in the performance standards. I mean, because um, as I mentioned with the qualifying facility, we do not need to coordinate with YBA. We need to go through a process. So I'm wondering if we can amend that to say, you know, appropriate utility. Appropriate electric utility or other regulatory agency just to allow for broader latitude. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, this next section, we're going to take each of these categories step by step and we're going to pause at the end of each to have a discussion. So, um, right, we'll start with site planning, which addresses a lot of different things. Um, the YD, um, YDEA height. Parking, um, workforce housing, battery facilities, it will move to environment, the sensory impacts, decommissioning, and then um, this is not included in the draft that you all reviewed for tonight, but we have some questions about a potential additional section related to an economic analysis. So we'll pause at the end of each of these categories um, to go through. Yeah. Okay. So um, starting with site planning um, in terms of site access and site design. Um, a lot of these are very similar to what exists today um, and you're codifying some existing policies. So um, have to get an access permit for public works. Um, so some specific language around that. Um, language around minimizing soil disturbance, um, soil compaction, as well as um, water runoff and limiting overall land disturbance and clearing. So from a site design perspective, we're really trying to limit the amount of ground that is touched unnecessarily, but it's really focused on the specific areas that are, are needed um, to install the, the solar um, array. Um, need to consider the environmental impacts and the overall facility effectiveness. A road engineering study is required as well. 
Um, this top one, um, Mr. Macy's is the, the one that I think you called out. So uh, right now the draft says coordination directly with um, by the EA. Um, so we'll uh, generalize that a bit more as we, as we make adjustments. Um, there's a uh, 100 foot setback requirement for these uh, community scale and utility scale solar facilities when they're adjacent to a residential building. Um, continues to be subject to the water body uh, setbacks. Really important piece about, um, about setbacks though is that we're saying that they can cross property lines when multiple lots are used. And so if um, an organization was going to develop a community scale or utility scale, and they needed to use a couple of different parcels, rather than needing to go through a formal process to combine those parcels, we're allowing those um, property lines to be crossed without um, needing to do their, the setbacks. There are some standards that are required to be met. So they need to prove that um, that's the most efficient way to do the system, that they have um, permission from, from property owners to do that, um, but that that was something that, that we heard um, in some of our uh, technical working groups that it's important to be able to cite these things where it makes sense. And sometimes that property line crosses through where you would want to put a solar panel. I would put easements on there too. Make sure you have, because they could cross property line, but unless you have a specifically defined, it could float up down that property line. And they end up where you didn't invent it. That's a good point. Thanks. That's great. And then from a height perspective, um, the height is limited to 25 feet. Uh, this was something we talked about a lot with the working group. Um, this is also sort of generally an industry best practice. You're not really gonna get anything that high typically, but we wanted to make sure that, that you know, we, we were being flexible to think about how might they be installed on a, on a slope site. Is that the place where we talk about vegetation or vegetation is going to be in the environment? Um, so we also are requiring um, really explicitly that county roads cannot be used for any staging and parking, but it all needs to happen on site. Um, a specific requirement uh, related to safety and, and overall operation of the facilities. That lighting is permitted, but it needs to meet some minimum standards to really protect um, dark skies. And so things like downcast light um, is included in the standards. Um, we have included a requirement that um, workforce housing that's provided as part of these facilities needs to be in a permanent unit rather than um, as temporary worker housing. We'll have a question um, for you all about that on the next slide. And then, long -term, the workforce. Right. Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, so we heard, um, we heard a little bit through our first visit, um, with you all in April and with um, some of the conversations we had um, in the working group and at the solar summit, a concern about the use of temporary workforce housing that's kind of traditionally been thought of with oil and gas um, and having that continue on and live in perpetuity in the code for solar. Um, and so we've identified right now that these need to be permanent, permanent units. Um, that is a change, and so we wanted to have a conversation with you all about what you think. 
I think the question is, are we comfortable with our existing regulations, which allow temporary workforce housing through a special use permit? You all have seen one recently come through for the mine. Um, through those conversations, we have had some strong opinions looking at you, Commissioner Corgan, on, on this issue, but maybe that has changed. So. So it will be a broader conversation, but it will be relevant to this specific sec sec section of the regulations, which is why we're bringing it forward now to get that feedback from you all. Yeah, I'm just curious why you would treat temporary workforce housing differently I think it's the bigger conversation um, for, do you want to still see temporary workforce housing in our regulations as, as we use it currently for oil and gas or basically to support these larger projects where you're going to bring in a workforce, you know, we're talking numbers up where near how many people but, are they saying? But there's an end to it. But, but, but it but depends on whether it. it's construction or whether it's for exactly. operation. Yeah. Yes. It, it's for actual during the construction phase. Construction phase only. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. So we're not talking about temporary workforce housing for operations after it's been built. No. Okay. No. And we've been told nothing otherwise that there would be a need for that. It's specifically during construction. So and you told me one time the this temporary workforce housing currently was intended for land. Well, it is is specific right now to mineral extraction. That's yes. why we're ready no. to do it. Oh, specific to its particular projects. Yeah. Any so it's not, project it's not specific to the resource extraction. Right. Okay. But that was what it was set up for. Hot in place for it to occur with. Yeah. Yeah. And I I restricting it, I don't know how you accomplish any of these projects in the first place. Just we we you can't house our workers, you know, 100 miles from here, let alone 20 miles from here. So there has to be some type of process if we want to support these moving forward. The flip side of that is um, some of these these solar developers and installers are pretty well to do. And maybe them staying in hotels and communities <laughs> generate some revenue for this. It, it, maybe if yeah. we were turning our hotels into <laughs> apartments. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if we don't like think about the the oil and gas boom, typically there's a frenzy of hotel building and then they're full for a year and then it leaves and then you have a bunch of empty hotels or like in, in Rangeley, um, they expanded their school from oil and gas funds and now half to three quarters of the schools it's shuttered. And so that, that temporary aspect at least allows the construction to occur and maybe give us some lag time for the permanent housing to catch up. Mm -hmm. That that's in the high density zone. 
what we're talking about is that he had to have mm -hmm. quite a different conversation. So, mm -hmm. a, a speculative development in an urban zone, I feel quite differently about sure. than temporary housing in the AF. So, let me ask you this. <laughs> Let's say they really just kick off and <clears throat> Uh, they would like to set up a man camp or a person camp. I'm sorry, you knew where it was going. Patch that's not would not be annexed is outside of the room growth boundary mm -hmm. under our current regulations. That would, right now it would be eligible for temporary workforce housing with with water and sanitation capability. No, yeah, not outside the urban growth boundary. <laughs> well. Hey, I, I realized that they would be tapping into that six inch water line that goes through there. No, they, these units are typically self contained. I know what we permitted mm -hmm. right. east of the airport. Exactly. Right. Right. In the AF zone. Correct. So, question why are we including this language in the, in the solar chapters, if you will, as compared to where else is it in our regulatory body? Yeah, and let's let's leave it there and and not bring it into the solar as a implication that it's. it's I guess it, it's it's a good point. It's also though, um, I think a consideration when we're being told how many workers are going to be brought in, and should it be a requirement that a developer have a housing plan, and we need to figure out what the temporary workforce housing solution may be. I think, those kinds of I think it's more of a feasibility of a project. Sure, I've heard that slam right here. Yeah. And if we were, if this was a regional approach tonight, Moffitt County would be saying, guys, please do not include that in your solar development <laughs> side. Let them come and utilize our hotels. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not sure we need to include it, or at least based on my initial review, a limited understanding we need to review it. Okay. Are included in this particular area. Well, I wonder what about I'm sorry, what about just then what you were saying, Ren? Why are we calling it temporary? You know, that should they have temporary workforce housing, but instead make it a little bit broader and say they need to address the plan for workforce housing. Yeah. housing. Yeah. And that makes it a little less. You have to tell us how many units you're bringing in with self-contained water, self-contained sanitation, and more of a view of, explain to us, do you intend to go to Moffitt and ask to use their empty hotels? Do you intend to have some permanent housing so that the people who are going to run the solar array get to live there? Or do you intend to have a mixture? In other words, I think there's language that we could put into this that at least gives us um, you know, so the authority sure. to say, tell us your plan. Yep. Don't just come in here, ask us to approve it, and then have some. So, tell so us, getting back to Brussels Ranch, there's mm -hmm. going to be a developer that comes in and builds 400 units. As part of the city's process or our process, we don't get into how many subcontractors they're bringing, and are they, in fact, bringing subcontractors from steamboat springs or importing from other markets. It's not part of our due diligence, if you will. And so I would suggest, does this need to be part of our due diligence? It will come up in the conversation. 
because then you sold it as a developer. That's going to be a big part of their, you know, of their economic profile of the viability of the project. So, but just we having need, we need to we need to identify. I'm not sure that, that you need to have language saying what it has to be, but I think you have to maybe should have language saying, tell us what it what your plan is. Or right. they decide to go to temporary housing. We have other language. Like right. But but one way or yeah. another, it has to be something where it's it's they've got a plan. Yeah. Okay. Well, this, I, is good, I, this is giving good direction. To say, tell us your plan and actually to have it in there. But that plan could be a Bunch of different stuff. And we're going to be interested in long-term employees. We're going to be interested in the short term. And I sure as I hope we're going to be interested in the tax revenue, which they they pushed towards us when they were first courting yeah. us, if you will. But I haven't seen any real detail yet. And they sell us saying that they're going to cover the tax basis for a period of time. Yeah. Again, that component to me needs to be a big part before we open our doors and allow these solar developers to come in. The economic impact is huge for us. Is yeah. it going to reduce our electricity? Probably not, right? So what are the what are the community benefits? We're getting to it in the economic, which is a huge part of yeah. why we're going to be doing this as we move forward, or should be. So to keep us moving forward, the next section is environment. Is there anything else on the site planning items? That I you think the hundred feet for utility scale as a setback might be. Yeah, but is that 100 from feet a from a residence or is it 100 feet from the property? From a residential building. So, one thing about this that that sort of triggers my a general broad comment about this entire document and what other communities are doing. Um, there are a lot of properties that are agricultural that are not being passed on to the next generation for whatever reason in other parts of the country. And they're seeing that leaving these ag lands to solar developers are is their form of revenue. They're seeing good money coming in. I've got a lot of figures of any share of development for you. My point is, I think when we talk about 100 people in residence, like what if that person is leasing their land to the solar developer and it's like right next door to them, but maybe they don't live there because they're not doing anything. And and also there's language that talks about ag, you know, can't be taken out of primary ag, which really, in my opinion, chances on somebody's personal yeah. decision about how what they want to do with their land. Like, how can we tell them that if you're advocated as productive, you got to keep it? Well, ag, ag is, in, as much as we support it and love it, is inherently inefficient in its systems. And if some, and the reason why we're very liberal with allowing different solutions for ag lands to generate other revenue is specifically addresses that very fact and that's how we support maintaining agricultural land is by letting them have the opportunities to generate revenue off of it and how, how you determine what product productivity is is an expert coming saying this is productive what what kind of standards do you have to to have that be I don't, I don't think we should be in the business of telling a, a a rancher how to best use their land they're they're the ones who are using it and if they see more revenue from that i, I don't know how to tell about how i would say no to that and that is in here and i'm not sure if it's in the section yeah. or if it's further on but it's in there it's before we skip off it's that workhouse standpoint i can make an argument that temporary housing on a site 
Like as much as it would be nice to push revenue into hotels, say in Craig, that additional traffic on Highway 40, which is already extremely dangerous and significant problem, I think would be more impactful of an impactful offsite condition than actually having them contained on a piece of property. I read an article from Steve O'Fyle last year about the Craig Hotels. It was basically closed up. I think he may be overestimating what the capacity is there. Just from observation, what's good. I know the paper is always trusted. Same idea there. Yeah, but a lot of the hotels have already done work for Yeah, they have taken them out of short term rentals in the three to six month years. I think we can like evaluate that language and um and present it to you in the next draft. Again, my said the workforce housing issue is not specific to solar. It is not, but it's it's it goes hand in hand with you know what we've been told by the solar industry and um, it's something that we will need to address and whether that's just through a housing plan, uh, but we can craft some language for you all and bring it back. And getting back to your question about 100 feet up against the residents. So what we're thinking of is AF up against high density and to answer your question, of, you know, I'm fine with 100 feet. Well, you could, up against high you, density. you could have 35 acre parcel of the individual's house is pretty close to 100 foot. They're all 100 foot set. So you may have had a solar fire two months away from that individual's house. Even though they have that. But again, that's the one that would be a big foot setback. Yeah. Okay, so that's the other house. But the 100 foot setback is from the array to the residence, regardless of where the property line setback is, correct? Right. Any residence. So it kind of protects in a situation where you might have a non conforming house next to a property line. There's still that 100 feet. So it sounds like that feels reasonable to folks generally. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, I'm going to move on to the environment section, which covers. Um, Quite a few areas. So starting off with erosion, sediment control, as well as ground cover and vegetation. Um, they are required to make sure that they're stabilizing all the disturbed areas as well as the soil during um, construction. Something we talked a lot with the working group about um, is the importance of retaining topsoil on the property and reusing that as much as possible. And so really trying to, again, kind of minimize the, the overall impacts and, and retain what, what, what we can on site. Um, we do have included a, um, a pre-soil test and a post-soil test as well within the regulations to make sure that the life of the solar array has not um, degraded that, um, that soil. A dust mitigation plan is, is required, and um, there's some specific requirements related to that to make sure that that dust nuisance um, doesn't impact the community. Um, Requirement for revegetation within one growing season and needs to use a native seed mix, and there's some links to um, kind of best practices uh, within the state of Colorado. Good luck with one year. Yeah. Yeah. 
what's your standard? How much germination per square foot per square acre? Like, like so the thing we have to hang our heads on, hats on, is standards. So any of these facilities are going to require a state stormwater permit, and they have a standard of seventy percent pre-disturbance vegetation before that permit is released. So that is the standard that we would rely on. Okay. That may not be one year in all. Sure. In reality, it's probably two years to be my guess. Yeah. Where where the solar rays are going in in the western part of the county, Maryland. And then seed specs. Do we have seed specs or relying on someone to tell us what a native seed mix is? We're relying on CW um, standards. So using their native seed mix. Um, don't we usually use the extension office? Not, not for this. No. I mean, maybe for these. Yeah. So this, I think this section is really well written and it sort of has an excessive amount of mentions of kind of native seeds and native plants and pollinators and all these things that I think are really good and water harvesting and things like that. Um, one thing that seems to be notably absent is mention of noxious bees. Um, there's no specific mention of it. It does say returning the site that as good or better, and it talks about not, you know, compiling like uh, soils that probably disturb soils would create that. But I think it may be worth calling out the natural almost in the That's that's yeah. like standard on anything. And we do have some language in the ground cover section. Um, where it must include invasive um, plant species and noxious, noxious weed control. Oh, yeah, and then the question is on that. Yeah. There's also, I have a question. There's something in here that, that vegetative cost would be considered. Seems like a yeah. very strange. Um, and, you know, I can flag that and just maybe put a question mark for you guys to look at why that was included. And then, yeah. Lastly, um, I do have some concerns about the amount of time, the amount of Places that watering for dust control is mentioned because that sort of seems to be a recommended strategy. And if these things are going to be where I think they are, they're not going to be in a place with a whole lot of water that we want to throw in the dirt. Is, is there another way to control dust? Well, there are a number of other options that are included in here, and watering is one of them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's like, well, we're vegetating. Chemically stabilized gravel water. I mean, gravel is probably better than. Are we talking about dust control during construction? Yeah. Yes. Water okay. not animated because yeah. long term you're going to be vegetated. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, continuously is one of those practices, but sometimes you need to be the life of the process. Yeah. I guess you're right. So, surprises so you talked about utilizing CPW's recommendations for revegetation, and that's fine. And we've always had the tradition of almost an exception accepting CPW's recommendations, mm -hmm. but that's not codified anymore. And I'm not sure that it should be codified, but it's kind of a great big gray area for us, right? We we look at a project, CPW makes recommendations. We're not required to observe the recommendations. They're not just regulatory. Yeah. And it's just a weird, I feel like we can end up being in a weird place at times. As a matter of fact, we just experienced this on Tuesday. We're in a weird place with that. 
Pay water with their recommendation. Yeah, it's like, you know, yeah, you've got CPW saying, yeah, you probably really shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. and yeah, maybe there's a way you can fix it over here. So, uh, commissioners, go ahead and decide what to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, so are you worried about there's not a requirement that we. No, I'm worried about the fact that there may be a requirement or there may not be a requirement. I don't know. Well, so it, it does say that shall be seeded with a vegetation mix based on determined by Colorado Parks model. So that is an absolute. Yes. Yes. In, yes. In, in this section, this is a native plant by vegetation data for Colorado. And then he also referred to, to their standards and modifications. There's so that would be an absolute. Yeah. It's also mentioned on wildland corridors. And you've got to be aware of that when you get down to the utility scale. Huge. But the wildland corridors will fall under the heading of a recommendation, not a requirement. Well, in our regulations, though, they're, they're, they're in there. Yeah, they're required to be put in there, but there's not sound science on what the what that corridor width should be. And it's all very site specific. So, because I thought about maybe we need to put like a specific standard in there, but didn't want to tie somebody's hands in case CPW says, well, that really doesn't work in this situation, but it does in this situation. So, there needs to be some flexibility when it comes to that. Um, and so, how do you in there? <laughs> we, we do specifically say that they need to maintain wildlife habitats and corridors, and that there is a pre and a post development survey relative to wildlife to understand what the impacts were. And if on that post survey, there has been an impact, then there's a kind of a process that they'll need to go through to see what changes do they need in their transition plan. Yeah, so that, yeah. If you're going to go down the CPW route, I'll follow. Um, <laughs> In the environmental sector, we are a fence out state. Do we want to put any language about environmental friendly fencing? Because all in there. CPW does not come they don't address applications mm -hmm. and doesn't behoove us in the, in the utility scale to put some in you know wildlife friendly fences fencing language. It's in there. Yeah. It's in there. It's in there. It needs to meet the fencing with wildlife in mind standards and then more serious. I'm going to circle back to your comments on agricultural. Um, so the the proposed code language talked about um, prioritizing agricultural and ranching uses, um, that irrigation ditch flows need to be maintained, and that um, kind of prime farmland soil should be um, impacted by the, um, the facility. So there's not a um, prohibition on locating on, on prime farmland soils. It's more about having a not having a significant adverse impact um, on on those soils. So I know there was a little bit of a conversation. So I wanted to um, maybe pause, get, see if there are any um, comments or questions on that piece. Yeah, I really don't like 18A. Um, I just I think it's really um, 
it's basically saying, you know, to me, I read it as saying you cannot put these things on highly productive agricultural lands, and CSU Agriculture Extension is going to check on that to make sure that your land isn't productive. And I think this is just basically taking people's private property rights away from them. Um, yeah. So CSU can define something that is highly productive or not based on soil types. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a reference to the Extension Office as well as. Um, USDA. I mean, if they wanted to take that productive land and get a zone change and turn it into commercial, CSU is not going to say anything about it. I mean, I don't understand. I don't understand the intent, I guess, is the question. Well, so I think the intent is clear. The intent is to try and protect what we seem to value or we put value upon. As you said, it's a taking because how that landowner uses that land to be as productive as they determine it to be is different than how somebody else might look at it. So I'm uncomfortable with any language that limits that because just like you said, if, if they wanted to plant trees and turn it into a forest that they cut down, that they, they can, that's their right to do that on that piece of agricultural land. And the multiple uses of agricultural land, I think, is more of a hallmark. Yeah, I'm hearing from these folks that are in these other states that are doing this actively is that, you know, this is preserving the family ranch. So, I mean, I'm not saying we should be driving productive ag out. What I'm saying is that they can get a 25 to 30 year lease that's, that's generating revenue. Sometimes that might be just what they need to be able to then return it to a, a functioning state because maybe the kid doesn't want it. And there are all these cases that like this actually can be a preservation and not a destination if it's allowed to be. We So we've heard a lot of concerns about taking productive ag lands out of production, <laughs> that 400 acre facility in Delta, Delta that was yeah. denied based on taking taking ag land out of production. So and they put speed on it. So, <laughs> so we this is just a, a taking ag land out of production is a hot topic in relation to solar. And so we wanted to have this conversation. And I mean it sounds like we have consensus that we don't want to limit it. I just see it as interfering with property. Okay. I mean, I think you could think about it, requiring mitigation. Okay. I, I think also, I mean, if we want to just sort of say the intent of, of the policies are to, you know, ag plans have a value in Rock County and, and, you know, it's not that we don't want to run them out or something, but just the specificity of item A where it makes me really uncomfortable. And then the other thing about protecting and maintaining flows and effective irrigation just just yeah, I have no problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't just, I mean, you have to, you know, when you call that, yeah. somebody changed the point. It doesn't work. It doesn't need to be Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll pull back some yeah. of that, that language. Um, great. And then um, any other questions? or comments on those environmental requirements? Uh, just a bit oh, uh, about the heat radiator. I mean, 
utility scale. Um, I didn't see anything about waterways in that as far as bird like a hydrogen generator from that mass and you impact on migratory or just transitory birds. Yeah, um, I think you're right. There's there's not a mention related to heat impacts. There's um some language you have to use overhead transmission lines and making sure that those are um that there's some mitigation there so that birds are not running into those. Um, I haven't seen um, that as the kind of heat issue and some of the best practice and the, the literature review we did, but we can go back and take a look and see if there's something to happen. That'd be great. Well, I, I just to follow up on that, they have had situations with high rises that reflected so much heat that they were actually melting plastic parts inside cars. <laughs> So I, you know, it is a possibility, but you know, something like that hopefully will be in the middle of nowhere. And also the, yeah, the I mean, this are. discussed in another workshop about that. And the idea is that these panels have become so much more efficient at absorption. I mean, they're not supposed to be reflecting. If they're reflecting, they're losing value and not productive. So I mean, as far as reflection and heat and all of that kind of stuff, that's I mean, as long as they're not at a tilt that is going to be blinding and glaring and they're not reflecting to a point of being productive, it's not. Well, I will say the FAA had no concern about the fields around the airport. That's right. It's not That's a very a glaring type of surface. Yeah, it's black. It should it's be. It's a surface meant to a floor. Right. And that, like, even on a small scale, my own panels. They're hot to the touch, but I don't feel like they're radiating heat off. But I think I think that there's a, a larger question there, which is that you know when we're talking about wildlife, I mean, you know, we think about corridors, we think about all the land animals, but what about the birds? You know, there's migratory corridors for birds as well, as well as you know the impact on the on the populations of birds that are near the sites. And I never see CPW. I never say see, never hear CPW say word one about that. Well, I'm a major bird nerd. I used to run the Audubon Society in Tucson. Yeah. And we did a lot of solar, we did a lot of bird stuff. And to be honest with you, like the science around solar impacting birds mm -hmm. is not there. Oh. Um, the science around wind and sighting of yeah. wind and sighting of transmissions, particularly is there. with yeah. raptors and other types of things, is absolutely. Well documented. So I have fewer concerns about that kind of thing than um, wildlife movement, just the actual physical destruction. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. That's moving. We talked a little bit about some of these already. Um, so we're talking about sensory impacts, um, fencing, screening, sound. Um, we do require a visual impact statement um, for these applications. Uh, facilities need to avoid excessive grading um, and access scars. Um, security fencing is um, required and needs to meet the wildlife fencing requirements. So again, that's referring specifically back to CCPW standards. Um, and then visual impact screen through vegetation and fencing and then sound um, is limited to the residential standard uh, at the property line, which is 55 decibels. Any questions on the sensory impacts? Oh no, I see your solar panels. It's more about the battery storage. Yeah. They hum. Yeah. So the, the goal there. Could you go back? Yeah, absolutely. And that the 
um, that would be cited, they would consider that in their citing um, so that they can move that sound standard from the, the battery storage area. So security passing is required. Uh, it's by the electrical code, yeah. and then okay. most investors and insurance companies are going to require as well. Okay. And then when we say visual impacts must be screened, what are you telling us that mean? Yeah. Um, That's a good question. So it, the I, again the idea actually the standards. Saying fence must be six feet high, must only so much. Do so you for the for not for a screening, but for a wildlife piece, right? So we've got very specific standards on that. We also get a setback bonus if they do that in the screening. Managers may have a small setback if they don't have the screening. So that could be um, that. They're adding um, trees, other vegetation. Um, maybe there's a firm that's part of the process. I think <laughs> you walked right into that. <laughs> we can't <laughs> hold you. But this is written, so there's some standards in here that are really specific, right? When we talk about wildlife fencing, it's very specific. There are others that are a little bit more open. So remember that the Planning Commission and the Board of County Commissioners are reviewing these. So when you see something that is very large and it is in view for a large extent of highway authority, for instance, you've got a standard to go back to that says that needs to be screened. And I don't want it done by a firm. I want it done by vegetation or I want it done by a fence, like whatever it is, right? And so you can go to this standard. So it is one of the squishier standards if you will. Okay. But it, it's intentionally that way so that you can really evaluate these on a case by case basis. All right, so um, decommissioning is uh, the, the last section that's in the code, and then um, we'll get to the, the potential additional section next. So we do require a decommissioning plan, um, and it needs to be followed following the facilities. Um, closure, if they lose connection to the um, utility hookup um, or the end of the lease. So we added a couple of different triggers for that to, to try to cover all the bases of what, what might be considered a closure. Um, everything needs to be removed. I mentioned there's a pre and a post closure soil testing. So that's identified in this decommissioning piece. And remediation might be needed in order to um, bring the soil back to their, their pre um, infrastructure levels. Um, there may be additional revegetation standards that need to be completed. And again, the revegetation or the reseeding completed within a year. Um, and then there's a financial assurance that is, is required. So they need to provide some kind of assurance equal to 150% of the cost of reclamation. So that includes the revegetation costs, administrative costs, labor, equipment, transportation, and disposal. So it, it is trying to cover soup to nuts, all the pieces that are involved with the decommissioning of, um, of a solar facility. And they comes cost. So the way we do that now is we get an engineer's cost estimate, and then public works would use that to make sure that it's accurate, and then we won't have 550%. So we, do we, we hire the 
Uh, no, currently it's the applicant would provide that and then public works that would check it. Yeah. Does that get updated over time if this is a 30 or 50 year? So yeah. It gets updated every five, five years. years. Um, <laughs> we have a question for the group of, of when. Oh, um, this is a really strong section, by the way. I was incredibly impressed with the detail that you guys provided here and the strength of the nature of the decommissioning and updating it every five years. Does uh, the decommissioning include that, particularly the solar panels, is what I'm thinking of, not just are to be removed and disposed of, but I remember when we were at the solar seminar down in Hayden, yeah. they talked about, I mean, you don't want these dumped in a landfill somehow. They need to be recycled. recycled. And mm -hmm. so have we put in that language that we expect recycling? We, we didn't. Um, and the reason for that is those are commodities. Like they are made of like parts and pieces that are worth money. And so when you're talking a scale of or 2,000 acres, that's a lot of money to just be throwing away. And so all of the racking is steel. And so that would go to a recycling facility. And then um, the actual panels themselves get taken apart into their individual pieces and recycled as well. So if you want a standard that says it must be recycled, we can add it. But then you're how do you how do you enforce that? How do we follow up on that? That's another administrative task that we would have to do during the reclamation phase to ask for receipts of where all that stuff went. And so you're just you're adding to the administrative. Again, of instead of saying must recycle, put in as part of the decommissioning language your plan for the recycling of you know blah blah whatever you know the panels there's a safe disposal piece in there mm -hmm. and i don't know if that's that's not very and i guess my concern is today it's worth a lot of money what happens 20 30 years from now when this site gets decommissioned and maybe there isn't a value to some of this but we don't know and it just seems to me that this is our opportunity to try and um, the people that are making all this money off of this solar array need to budget for a proper disposition of all of this equipment. It would be kind of weird of things taken to the wire bed to recycle stuff in a way that it's just a disposal plant. plant. I mean, it's a disposal plant. And so, yeah. so it's the same disposal in here, so we could say safe disposal as recycled plant. Yeah, but it's actually included in the bond calculations, right? Yeah. Right? Financially, maybe. No, it is. Yeah, Shall include all costs associated with the dismantlement, recycling, safe disposal of facility components. So and so. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't require it, but it says that it's part of the shirt was in there. So that seems. How about repurposing also being in there? Okay. Well, that's in, but that's included, would be included in disposal. No? 
Um, I mean, this disposal is like trashing, mm. but three percent is what they're talking. A lot of these people are talking about, you know, they they lose some capacity, but they can still be used by somebody else. Yeah, we can work with that language. Disposal would probably be covered by laws by other yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, when we first talked about this industry was pushing hard for no bonding, and we ran early discussion saying, "Well, there's going to be bonding." Have you had any other feedback? No, so mastery of this topic is no, and we had talked internally about when when do you require this bond? Is it prior to the building permit? Is it 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line? And we staff thought, well, they're gonna go in and they're gonna disturb 2,000 acres right off the bat. We need some assurances that they're gonna be able to reclaim that. That day, that the next day, if need be. So, yeah, staff are. determined that we think it should be required upfront. And also, just from a procedure standpoint, to answer you, Jay, we um, were part of this process after we get all your feedback. This is going to be open for public comment, and we intend to send it to the industry and to CPW and to our involved interested agencies for comments. So, that will be part of. Uh, collecting those comments and providing that all to you and working that into the next draft. I have a security question. Uh, was it 26i? Yeah. Am I misreading this, but it, it almost says maturity is not required until 10 years within commercial operation. Why is that? So why not first? Yeah, I think that there are language as we continue to talk about it, we think that it should be a condition of getting your building permit. Um, Will they be in a position, though, to come up with that estimate at that point in time? Yes. That's yes, the sure. building permit, and that was part of the conversation. And that's why it then gets renewed every five years. Yep. No, I definitely yeah. But when they have to put it in place, usually in the mining industry, it's at the time of the permit. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's what's intended for. It should be no different. Okay. We wanted to move into um, what is not in your packet, but potential additional section to get your feedback on if it should be included. So, this is related to um, an economic analysis um, and a socioeconomic impact. Um, so we um, would include a new section that talks about uh, the overall technical and financial feasibility of the project. So they need to describe their construction costs as well as the impact, um, identify the revenue and operating expenses uh, for the project, uh, as well as a description of who is going to pay for the project and who will benefit from the revenues generated. So getting into that economic piece um, and understanding the expenses gained um, and incurred in the, in the project. Second piece would be a socioeconomic impact analysis that um, identifies what are the impacts to land uses, um, just overall local government services, the economy and recreational opportunities by um, this solar um, system being uh, being implemented. So 
this again, as I said, be a, a new a new uh, section, and we wanted to get your feedback on if you think that this is a good direction to, to explore as part of our next draft, um, or if you've got any specific comments or questions about the solar. This is specific to yeah. solar. Utility scale. It would be community and utility scale. <clears throat> Why would you draw the solar that's what, like, yeah, why? Because right at this moment, we're only talking about solar. I think what would happen is as we um, move into modules two and three, where we're talking about oil and gas, we're talking about mining, this same set of requirements would, would also apply there. So it's just the first thing that, that's in front of you. Um, and so wanted to get your feedback on it. So would the result of the analysis be cause for a rejection of the permit? It could. It could. Mm -hmm. like, it like yeah. I think it's a good piece of transparency around these emerging energies and technologies. I mean, you know, if people are making promises about big jobs and big economic benefits, let's see it. Um, but my other question would be, if you're going to include this, and I'll defer to the group, but if you do include this, can we do a little research about exaction of energy? Because all of these other states that are really benefiting from this right now have sort of been regretful that they have not been able to benefit from any of the energy generated on those sites. And I don't know if that is in Colorado, you know, if that's a state by state, what is allowed to be asked for or That's an exact call it energy, call it cash. Right. But yeah, like, I mean, you know, could you just offer another I would soften the title by calling it economic and community benefit analysis. Okay. <laughs> the approach. We may just widen this to be a little bit. It seems like it would be very speculative and comparing what might be with utility scale solar versus nuclear versus coal or other. Intuitively, I like this, but it does put you in the position of judging whether or not you want to have a project on how much revenue the government can pull out of it. Well, it's but it's really starting with is it even financially feasible? It's probably the underlying theme. That's more yeah. where my I thought was going. Is but then the real question is when you ask for that information. I guess my concern is I don't know if I want my competitor knowing what I'm proposing. Well, then how do you evenly apply it to any commercial energy? Good question. Because we don't. That's why we don't do it. But the but the well, question, but it still begs the question of like, if we get nothing out of it, why are we allowing it in the first place? That's a different answer. That's, yeah, that's, that's got nothing to do with the first couple bullet points. I mean, I would for a facility of these sizes that we're talking about, wouldn't you want to know if the company has the financial um, resources to be able to install it up? But that's a different animal. That's not the same as asking for what are your costs going to be. I would counter that, Alan, would be you've got a reclamation bond. If they fail, right. Yeah. And, and for these corporations to, to seek surety 
their financials have to be the yeah, best. Yeah. I mean, you don't ask, we don't ask for that in the San Andreas industry. I know it's near and dear to my heart, but we don't. We post a bond. <laughs> well, and I think the bonding covers that aspect of it. Yeah. But I don't think the bonding covers the aspect of like the community benefit. I mean, but that's you know, do we I'm want about that? Not? No, that's the last bullet point. We're on the first two so far. And is it <laughs> is it somewhat arbitrary though? Like how will we determine what is community benefit? Some people see it one way, some people see it another. How we that's what it, that's why there's an analysis. I mean, you just want to know like what why why are we bothering to do this if we're not getting anything out of it? And also let them get to do it. Do you remember from the solar uh thing in April? You know, they were talking about you know, you're going to be here 25 years. We want you to be a community partner. What does that look like? Well, maybe, you know, next community, it looks like they need to be putting in a, you know, playground or a library or, you know, some kind of community. Well, and it's, school buses, right. Okay. But it's, but it's, but it's fundamentally different from oil and gas because oil and gas, generally, they own those mineral rights. In this case, nobody owns any rights to do this yet. Yeah. It's very different from oil and gas. With oil and gas, you effectively can't say no if they own the, you know, the mineral rights as opposed to the surface rights. Whereas here, the surface rights is all there is. I think the community benefit. I like where you're going, and I like the community benefit piece to this also. I mean, I think you know the idea of show me your books is a little challenging, but I mean, I understand what your point is on with that. I mean, they they got to be able to back it up. I think that's kind of the bonding piece. Then do you do that? Evenly across all industries, or do you yeah. single out specific industry? Um, but, well, if, if, it's gonna be, if it's going to be covered by a, a bond or some type of reclamation surety, that's applicable to, to all these. All of our it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's the subdivision question. We don't so, is the public ask. benefit piece? I mean, this it, is something that we are proposing in the next section also in our overlays for development, right? So right. I think it's applicable across the board, but you know we're just talking about solar at this point. I like it conceptually. How do you get to the root of it, and are you getting good information from it, or is one person saying one thing and somebody has a different opinion? And how do you square those two things up? Again, removing conflict from the decision when we can just rely on regulations and standards. When we make our decision, that's what we can hang our hat on, and nobody can come and say, "Well, you gave Fred this, and you didn't give Jim that." You know, that's what I'm always trying to avoid: decisions is fair and equitable, and based on regulations and standards. So it takes my opinion out of it. it would have to be third-party unbiased. Yeah, evaluation. Right? Another criteria. What if it comes to the board I mean, if it is something that we might consider to be confidential information or proprietary information, I mean, it's called hand, hand <laughs> executive session. Executive session. Is that something that we wouldn't want to do? I mean, I'm, I'm hearing, you know, one and two is pretty much covered in bonding and surety, mm -hmm. right? Shirty. Um, and, and two. Um, but more, I think there could be an appetite for bullet three, more about some sort of um, 
public benefit. Let's get some examples of what has been pitched by the solar developers in the past. Maybe we could ask those folks who are at the um, solar summit because they've talked quite a bit about that. And that, that was important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Gale does come into the conversation for sure. The scale of this is it's similar. Like if you look at the scale of a big subdivision versus a six sub, six unit subdivision, so there could be some type of trigger or against standard that raises that bar and maybe you don't have to do it for some things but we recognize that larger things have bigger impacts why don't you simplify the last bullet what's in it for us <laughs> seriously that's really what you're asking because they don't have a right to do it oil and gas guys do oh they still have no that's true they you can ask the question yeah. What's in it for us? No, I know that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. no, but I mean, with, with oil and gas, you can't oil. because they own the mineral. It's oil and gas, and it's located right next to a creek that feeds directly into the Napa. But we're on this yeah. and we're on let's the talk about that when we're talking about. It. Yeah, no, I just I think that's pretty straightforward. Why would we consider this? What's the benefit to the dam? Sounds like we're wrapping up the solar project. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great. Before we move on to tears. We've, we've got um, a little bit of editing to do and um, just clarification, but really, really helpful comments. Thank you. Digging in on solar. Okay. And I move to overlay districts. Um, first, we thought we would uh, start with what is an overlay versus what is an underlying zone district. So zone district, um, sets the very specific standards um, for any land. So you're going to identify typically um, in, a, in a zone district, the allowed uses, the heights, the setbacks, um, building size, building placement, those types of things. An overlay applies on top of or over that um, base or underlying zone district. And it is intended to implement additional regulations. It is often more permissive than that base zone district. So you might have um, a higher height that's allowed or a smaller setback or different land uses. So that's the intention with an overlay. Um, the way that our current draft is written right now for tiers two and three from the master plan, is that these would be um, overlay districts on top of existing zones. Um, I think we're interested um, as part of the conversation tonight to be having you all think about, should these be overlays or should they be new zone districts for some of these areas that identify um, some, some more specific uh, information. So be thinking about that. And just to preference, I guess, on this next slide here, just a, a reminder of how we set up these um, this tiered approach to where development is appropriate in the county. The tier two areas are for the areas around the airport. So the Hayden overlay we're gonna be talking about as well as West Steamboat and then for Stagecoach. Those were identified because there is already um, pretty good infrastructure in those locations. Um, and though and development that you potentially could see in those tier two areas um, are supposed to be development that supports the community, a community need. Um, tier three, on the other hand, are those historically developed 
communities already out in the county. So Peaberg, Milner, we have Hans Peak, and then we added Clark and Taponis in there as tier three. And we're gonna have that discussion should there be two separate categories for tier three, like tier three A or B. But those communities, as you know, already have some sort of historical development, and there could be some reasonable development that could be appropriate in those areas also that supports the community. So an example would be in Clark, um, you know, we get asked all the time um, for employee housing for the workers that live up north, and there's really no available housing. So could a small um, employee housing development, you know, in that vicinity be appropriate. And, and so that's really what we're talking about here. It is encouraged in the master plan. We're trying to figure out how to implement that. And so this is our approach um, to look at each tier and come up with specific zoning to um, allow for some of these kinds of uses that we can expect to see. And just for point of reference, the any overlay is really designed to be more permissive, not less permissive than right. the underlying zone. So you would never see something made more stringent than underlying. Yeah. No, you you could. You, you, you could. could. You could. Design standards are actually an example of that, where you might have no standard throughout most of the county, and then you say, well, in this tier, we're trying to go for a specific. This is a hypothetical example, but maybe we want everything in Hans Peak to have a pitch roof. Like that would be part of the overlay district and that would be stricter. Okay. So it is an overlay can't because you made the comment it was more it's perfect. typically more, more permissive. But it but it's not not always. always. And it, okay. and just we're gonna get into it. performance standards where it's not necessarily that it's more strict, it's that there's a lot more detail included in these um in these performance standards. And going back to the slide where you had uh, additional regulation, they might change that different regulations. Additional would imply that all people restricted. I, I, I think that would be the inference, even though the regulation you're using turns out is less restrictive. Great point. Are these tiers currently physically defined? So tier twos are right. Two are. Two are. Yeah. Master plan. Master plan. Tier three is not. Pardon? Tier threes are not. And that's right. And as part of um, the further refinement of this code text, we'll be adding additional graphics that describe calculations and um, identifying a map. And how and, and and how would you do that for tier threes? We'll we'll talk about it when we get to Okay, sorry. <laughs> Just curious. I know you're really fun at that bit. I am. I'm psych. I'm like, how do you do that? Um, okay, so for tier two, there is a section that is in general standards. Um, this talks about how the the tier two areas were established through the master plan. It identifies some of the specific um, utility requirements. Um, it has just very basic reference statements on uses, dimensions, and then it goes into some performance standards. The performance standards in the general section apply to Hayden, Stagecoach, and Weston Boat Springs. And then within the Tier 2, Hayden, Stagecoach, and Weston Boat Springs, those have additional performance standards that are specific to those geographies. So 
we're going to start with the general section. So what this um, section states is that a tier two area needs to have a county approved sub area or community plan. Utility service needs to be provided. Any use that's in the underlying zone district is allowed. And if there are dimensional requirements in these tier two areas, which we've started to explore, that those would actually supersede the underlying zone district. So this is an example where you would in this, in the Hayden area, in Stagecoach and in West Steamboat, you would be looking to these overlays to understand what are your dimensions, what, what is your lot size, setbacks, height, that kind of thing. Uh, the performance standards that apply to um, all of the tier two areas, we've identified that a public benefit is required and um, have identified what some of those things might be. So it's uh, maybe it includes restricted housing, um, a mix of housing type, uh, preservation of critical wildlife um, habitats. Maybe there's preservation of a historic um, building or, or parcel. So um, it's written generally, uh, but gives some um, ideas for review body and analysis. Requires that um, emergency and municipal services are available, that they can be provided, um, and they need to meet with the applicable um, special district or utility provider. Um, so basic infrastructure, which is defined as access, water, sewer, electricity, needs to be provided. Um, Again, kind of pulling in from the master plan, the importance of preserving agricultural and ranching land. So it's saying that you cannot impact critical ranching and agricultural lands um, as a general standard. Can I and ask then, a question about the infrastructure real quick? Does that mean central water and sewer in tier two? Uh, yes. yes. Central. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for reference, um, I got asked a question by a few of you about- Oh, the CSCS. <laughs> CSCS. So that is in our existing regulations, and that is Central Sewer Collection, collection System. There so we go. This means no wells. No wells. Correct. Well, I think it would mean at least sewer. Good. Yeah. 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 But that still would be central. Mm -hmm. they, they have their own municipal district, basically. Could be small, maybe larger. And is this applicable to all of the areas? Tier twos. All the tier twos. So Hayden, Stagecoach, and West Steamboat. So basically, so, everybody with Stagecoach left and who needs a well. You can't drill a well in the Morrison District. Yes, you can. You can. Well, they will apply for the permit and drill it for you, but yes, that's part of their water service plan. So every single lot in Station Coast needs a well permit and a vault permit is under five acres. And in some cases, those vault permits are completely used up like morning side. So they have no capacity to get vault permits. So basically, this does not include vaults. It's not intended to include vaults. But, but, but you would need water and sewer. So if we were talking about that um, south area that's undeveloped in Stagecoach, you would have to bring it, you would have to connect to the to the existing system. Morrison. Yeah. So, so you're it's station. Yeah, well, I mean, it's more than likely that won't. Would exclude the cell. Yeah. The cell no. do, do you think that when you bring up those three tier twos areas, 
Stagecoach is uniquely different, in my opinion, is uniquely different from this, the other two because the other two are more likely to see annexation and become part mm -hmm. of a, right. a tier one, whereas Stagecoach, you're basically trying to make them become a tier one without having to incorporate, and the county is basically subsidizing their facilities, some of their facilities and some of their services. Oh, roads for sure. Roads for sure. Old Creek subsidized the, the fire, and now we have crappy fire service. It's a problem. It's a problem. I think Stagecoach is inherently a different place. And the commercial end of like the Stagecoach discussion, I know there's been talk about the need for that commercial component for my short time here of 20 plus years. No one's built it. So how needed is it actually? I, I think stagecoach is a little bit different animal and maybe should be well, well, these are general standards for them all, but then we then dive into each specific area. And there are absolute differences that you're mentioning that we call yeah. out. I mean, West Steamboat and Hayden are eligible for annexation. Stagecoach is not. Well, in the comment, you know, must pursue. And I don't know that without annexation. That they, but we're saying when applicable. So it, we're, we were, yeah, we should have called out stagecoach, but that meant stagecoach no, is not applicable. It actually covers that. Yeah. But I think that. Because we've had some conflict in the past with the county approving subdivisions that the city said no to. Annexation in those tier twos almost seems to me like it should be a requirement. I don't know if that has legal to stand on, but they may not be eligible for annexation at the time, though. We see a development. What if you see something in West Steamboat that doesn't meet the requirements for annexation at the time, but later on that they um, they are eligible? Mm -hmm. So we would want them to develop to the city standards for the time that they are eligible to annex. You'll deal with the and we'll get into some of those specifics as we get into each of the of materials and what that looks like. Yeah. Sidewalks is an example where it's treated differently um, because of existing city standards. So um, I'm still hung up on basic infrastructure. Because I mean, basically, what we're saying is that unless you're on a central system, you cannot build. Or you can or you can develop. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, this this is what we're talking about. Our it's it's um larger scale. To, scale development, not as a right single family dwelling units. Okay. Um, okay. You've got a past talking about this is not specific to solar. This is not correct. <laughs> <laughs> These are our lives. We're into that. 
Excitement of zoning. So um, I'm going to cover Hayden um, really quickly. So this is a graphic from the um, Hayden plan. And um, this area um, is, is really essentially by the airport. Um, and so we will, as part of the uh, next draft that we're providing you, um, provide specific boundaries. But the idea is that it is south of Highway 40 um, and goes over to Henry 27. Yeah, the Hall Road. The Hall Road. And then also, <clears throat> um, what we're proposing here is within the Hayden's three mile plan already. So we are mirroring what their community plan essentially says. There are three miles. Where does that get measured from? Is that from their like city limit or is that from like the center of town? I mean, where's the three miles start? It's from the town boundary. From the outside. But, but the tier two area to be clear does not cover the entire. That whole, no, but I was just curious in terms of <laughs> definition of their three mile plan. Like yeah. that's from the town boundary. Yeah. That's correct. Okay. So we, what we've tried to do as much as possible for, um, for Hayden is to mirror existing requirements within the town. And so we have used the residential high, the commercial and the light industrial zone districts um, for the standards here. Um, so that we have identified dimensional standards and it matches those zone districts. So we're taking what the town of Hayden has and implementing it into the county's code Again, that idea of wanting to encourage annexation, um, but to Christy's point, maybe a parcel is not exactly eligible for annexation today. We don't want to create a lot of nonconformities for the town, and so um, we would match their standards. Um, in terms of land uses, uh, encouraging light industrial uses, live work, as well as some hotel and lodging uses. So again, you, this is an area around the airport, so trying to think about what is appropriate from a use perspective in that area. Um, in terms of some specific performance standards, um, this section um, speaks to the access and the views from Highway 40. And so specifically that um, part of the uh, development standards you need to make sure that there's safe access to Highway 40 and that the level of service on the highway cannot be changed. So they are required to provide a transportation study indicating that. And if it's shown that this development would impact the level of service, they need to provide mitigation measures to make sure that it is not negatively impacting that level of service. And level of service is a kind of typical transportation term, the ranking from A through F. Um, and so that's that's what we would be um, using here. From the master plan, um, there are a lot of comments about the importance of preservation of open space corridors and views from Highway 40. So we've included that as a requirement. And then the town of Hayden does not require sidewalks. And so we've included language that says sidewalks are encouraged, but they are not required. Again, wanting to mirror what is happening in the town. Um, before I move into stagecoach, any questions or comments on Hayden? I have one, I've got a question. Hayden would be annexed into what? No, it, these areas would be annexed into Hayden. So these areas um, that are north of the airport, for instance, right now that's in the county. Okay, great, sorry. And they could annex into 
which will take that task from the new and the day of the week on Sunday. <laughs> oh, we already got it here. Do they have the same requirements in terms of standard requirements in terms of contiguous property lines for that's state, that's yeah. state Okay, so moving into stagecoach. Um, same thing. Each of these are is the kind of same format, dimension and performance standards. So um, this is a map of the stagecoach area. Um, what we have not identified in the current language, but is um, something that we are going to be doing is we think that there's a differentiation between what we're calling the north portion of stagecoach and the south portion of stagecoach where the southern portion has a lot of product, platted lots that do not right now have access to utilities and that um, until there are utilities that um, can be provided their sewer and, and water, um, additional development really shouldn't be happening beyond what's currently allowed. So, so does that mean the overlay would include that area or exclude it? So we're working through what that map looks like. Our, our thought right now is that we would show the overlay um, potentially covering all of stagecoach, but with a dividing line of right now, it, this standards. only applies to the north portion. Yeah. What about Southshore? It's in the northern portion that doesn't have separate electricity that has central utility. But you could bring in and extend the sewer and water more easily than in the south areas. But the south are residents and this is one that they water. Some of them. <laughs> yeah, I can provide a plan for their water and sewer if you want to see what they have put in front of them 10, 15 years ago. Half said cool, half said no way. And then 10% said get out of here. <laughs> 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 and there's a whole weird, that's just a weird neighborhood. <laughs> Are we recording this? Okay, so I'm going to move into just a discussion really um, quickly on dimensions and uses. So um, the dimensions uh, right now in this draft are really generally consistent with the underlying zoning. Um, we've identified um, outdoor recreation use as something that is uh, uh, encouraged here that's consistent with um, with the master plan. And an example of kind of a different dimension is we've identified um, a height of 50 feet for outdoor um, recreation uses, trying to kind of contemplate some of the things that might happen there. Um, from, a, from a use perspective, um, we're saying it's encouraging publicly accessible outdoor recreation uses. This is something that we heard from the community um, through our community engagement, that that was important. Um, also, the fact that I think of some of the subdivisions approved through the years, they include a trail system through. We do that with like my grocery property. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's a requirement in our existing subdivision regulations through the open space requirements. No, what we heard from the community is um, more of the recreational uses. Um, an example would be Windwalker, um, that most of you probably were on <laughs> the board at that time. And, you know, they were proposing a private golf course for that. And we got a lot of flack for that. Um, oh my God. <laughs> they, they were approved, right? Um, so <laughs> when we were out in Stagecoach specifically, um, this was a lot of the comments that we got that we should talk about publicly accessible outdoor recreation uses. So they're asking about public versus private. Yeah, right. yeah. We need to be a requirement. Yeah, and that's why. They can charge what they want, but yeah, is is that your experience? Yeah, and the developers always come back every ten years and try to get rid of that. No, it's a public entity. Yeah, I mean, I know other communities that do that also. Yes, they have to charge everyone. They can't stay in business. But that, that, it, I think a private facility versus a public facility are two different things. And Windwalker wasn't, like, my objection to Windwalker wasn't because of what they were proposing. What they were proposing is perfectly allowable. The way they went through the process. That right. I'm talking about finding that out, just saying that there has been golf courses and ski areas and where the planning breaks say, you go. You can allow that, but it's got to be acceptable to the public. At the same, you know, you can the price structure and have to hold that. Yes, so they're not I don't know how we can fail in that. You can't. Why does it Why would you ever want that? That's happening. We don't want to fail development. We don't want one, but if they make their their proposal, our public benefit is is that average landscape is $300,000. So the landscape is generating this much money to the public benefit, or however you want to put it. I don't know how you limit a private club on private land. I that just seems strange to me. Or telling a private club that they have to have public access because they want to do it, and we're making them do it. I just I don't know how I square that argument with. Well, so but we, I mean, for example, we talked about these subdivisions where we required a trail that's open to the public for people to walk through. We, we have a precedent. We're doing it right now. And, and I, I think residential use, residential use versus outdoor recreation, the conflicts that you could have with uh, snowmaking operations, snowpad operations, the liability of this and stuff, or any type of outdoor recreation facility that has 
infrastructure to it, then you want to be able to control the access to that infrastructure. Yeah, they can cut off a portion of the property and say this part of the property is all Republican, not a Western. I mean, you, the argument you're making is similar to what happened to. Well, or, or is it mm -hmm. what happened to the cell industry? The cell that was a taking of their land to make them put the trail through that piece of property when the city had a That was the actual taking of that piece of land. That that trail did not have to go through there and adversely impacts the business, changes how the person can use their land, and yeah, the benefit is is that people get to roll right through the property. But now there's a fence, so you can't even access the river, which is what we were trying to say is the amenity you want people to use, you know? And it goes, and it goes nowhere. Yeah, thanks, Brian. No reason. So, I just have a problem with this conceptually. If so, when we improve subdivision, we have an absolute requirement for a dedication of public space for a park. Absolutely. That's a recreational requirement. Absolutely. Which you know, that's public. Something it's a different animal than the subdivisions we normally approve, and we have a process now to provide public spaces for the public within a subdivision. You, so you're talking about something that's just a recreational. What about like a special use permit for a golf course? Like, so would it be appropriate for us to say, okay? Uh, you get 18 holes, and we get a 19 hole. <laughs> <laughs> but could you do that as a specific regulation for that particular use and not have it be so general as it applies to all recreation? Yeah, it's kind of like we're, we're all yeah. talking about outdoor recreation uses, and that's what the slide obviously says. But we've talked about it in terms of just general businesses and what types of things, you know, support the community and don't. Um, the steamboat has actually done that at the base area. They have a separate category for private clubs um, and certain private clubs aren't supposed to be in, well, their phrase is the pedestrian active building frontage, but basically the ground floor that you can actually walk along is supposed to be a publicly open type of business. And so if you think of that in your head as like a, like a, a Masonic lodge versus um, a restaurant, those are two distinctly different uses and one of them, you can easily say, yeah, that's private. It's called a private club. And then the other one you'd call a public business. And so it's a little bit easier to conceptualize with a brick and mortar type of business. And that's something we've also considered with Stagecoach. And that might be something you might have some comments on, but that's it's not just publicly accessible outdoor recreation uses, which we also do have precedent with, with uh, trails, for example. Um, and I think a lot of what's driving this is in the master plan process, right? We heard loud and clear people prioritize public access to recreational facilities and opportunities. Um, and then when we were in stagecoach specifically, 
we then heard that again through the community as something we should consider and explore. That's where we're at. I think one one example um, that the Taos Sea Area um, uses, they have uh, two different different definitions for outdoor recreation. One is public, and that's allowed a use by right. One is private, and that has to go through the most stringent review process that they have, um, because that community was, was really concerned about the privatization of the the base area. Um, and so I think that it's it's a question for stagecoach, but also potentially countywide, right? Of, of how should some of these outdoor recreation uses um, be treated within the land use code? And do we want to have some kind of public access requirement or not? Or do we want to define private club and have a different review process? So while I think we're, we're here looking at stagecoach, it, it could apply countywide. And, and again, we want to hear some of the feedback tonight so that we can then move forward in, in some additional drafting for module two. I think when there's it, when it's a development on public land, easy to do. When it's development on a private land, yeah, Maribu. So Maribu should have had a requirement that they have no gates and that people can ride bikes on their privately maintained roads. And when somebody falls, smashes their face, they have awful, they can sue Maribu. Or can they now sue the county too because we require that access? I think, you know, the ski area is a very classic example of a mixture of private and public property. It's governed by a special use permit. It's governed by a permit that is the Forest Service. And the argument always gets made in reference to uphill access that it's national forest and I should be able to walk up. Well, the danger that you represent to other operations is overlooked in that it's my public land and whatever I can I can do whatever I want on it. So there's some conflict potentially creating by allowing public access on private land. I just again I don't know how how that works. But I'd just say there's developments all through Colorado which have privately maintained roads with public access. That and there's numerous communities who just said no more gates for developments. That's been a battle throughout Colorado. Yeah. A lot of communities have gone that way. And you can tell when you go into development, like, oh, they wanted a gate there. And this dollar in the county said no. So you can make that happen. It's more of a bigger discussion on do you want to make that happen? Is it even an issue worth addressing? And I think it's also a character of the county yes. kind of discussion. Like, mm -hmm. is this, uh, is, does the community want to go in that direction of private clubs, which are higher and more expensive versus a more inclusive and, I guess, populist approach to, to land use in the county? Again, it's federal or BLM and it's publicly owned property, I think it's a different approach for who's private. I just I don't know how, and I don't know that the character is ruined by a gate at Maribu. Like I but I, if you're I, dealing with things that are uses by right, that's a different matter than if you're coming through a county process and requesting a permit for a thing that you don't already have a right to do. 
You're asking for a permit to do something that's not allowed by your property rights. And therefore, you have to meet certain additional requirements in order to get that permit. In that instance, I think you're you're right. Well, that's it, it has to be it has to be a use that is not allowed by right. But yeah, but that's what we're talking about. Most recreational facilities are uses by right. Out of the use as use by right. Uh, uh. You got to get a special use permit. Yeah, I can't put a cross country ski track property and have people come in and pay for it and use it. No, absolutely not. You're asking for, but if you're asking for a permit, it's yeah. it's no longer. But if you have private memberships to your a home, use by right. Again, it's a different thing when you have paying customers off the street versus a club. The club. I just I. I Andy, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I think you're going down the rabbit hole, and I think some of the language already exists in your performance standards, Section C, in terms of the public benefit. Every large-scale developer knows that there needs to be a public benefit, and they will bring that as part of their application, whether they want to open up their private club for the public, maybe they do, maybe they don't, and that's their right. Us telling them that it's a requirement, I think we'll we'll see a loss. Uh, are we back at the being said that performance standard that is in there? Yep. That is where there's clearly a public benefit that is needed in an application. Well, we're back to the last bullet point on solar. What's in it for us? And I'm just trying to understand the, the example that was given about tiles is very clear to me. You know that if you're used by right, you're used by right, and it's one process. And if you are asking for additional, it's another process. So, right. I mean, can we add something that talks about, um, you know, private facilities that are to be located with whatever that are not used by right go through X, Y, and Z process the most review? They kind of already do. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Right? So I feel like why are we? Well, we don't have a specific uh, dedication of a public site when we look at recreational facilities. Right. We do for a subdivision, but we don't do for a recreational facility. So we need a definition. Yeah, I mean, we don't have um, a definition in the regulations for um, what you see in the stagecoach plan for recreation-oriented development. That's the only place you're going to see that definition. Um, we um, want to define that, and we also need to talk about, you know, what you just said, Sonia, about um, what level of review that would be for. Do we need to put bookends on it? And that's really what we're talking about here. Yeah. But, but any big OR development is going to have a residential component. Absolutely. It's yeah, it's in the definition. It's so the recreational component component is the primary use, you know, the main element of that facility, whatever it may be. And there naturally will be um, accessory uses to support that use. And that includes residential mixed use commercial type development. And if, and if we put public language requirement language in it, you will see 35 acres. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we're trying to you know, not have that. You know, I was only half talking about one locker because that will be a similar thing. You give us a percentage of that piece of property as a public piece of property. 
we're not requiring that you let everybody play golf on your precious golf course. You cut out a corner of the property. But well, we didn't have that public or a fee and loop when we reviewed that application. We included it here. But we, we wouldn't have to view it through the lens of letting people trips all over the private club's property. We would just say, hey, just cut out 20 acres. That's ours. We want to use it for a public recreational facility. Right. Um, I mean, that would be better. I'm in favor of making this, making it more clear that we elevated the uh, outdoor recreational application to a higher level of scrutiny. And I don't know if that means we need to define a different category that we can Aren't they, but aren't they all SUPs already? Aren't all recreational oriented developments SUPs? I mean, we don't have you don't have it yet. Well, like, I mean, more than a, a ski area is an SUV. A golf course is an SUV. Um, so those uses are already defined as SUVs. Mm -hmm. But there's no specific provision for an exaction, no. for a public and, use. And is there any um, consideration of? I mean, earlier, Silver were talking about the impacts and the size and the acres and all those things. We treat basically a five acres area on somebody's private home, his personal private club, the same as we treat, uh, you know, 300, not five, that example, but a smaller versus a 3,000 acre one. Are they going to see you start with like this? Well, it's not your private club. It's the, it's the list that trigger It's mechanized modes of transportation. That's what triggers the, the special use permits. And going back to the, the wind blocker example, because it's one of the very few outdoor recreational facilities that we have. I don't, if I, I'm not, remember, if I remember correctly, the golf course wasn't the trigger for the special use permit. It was how was it? It was. I mean, they wanted to put a bridge in over the years. So it was how they wanted to build their. That was a whole separate no, issue. That was a separate. So they have a conditional use permit for their lodge and their three remote bedroom cabins. Then they also have a special use permit for the golf course. When I remember when that application was coming through and listening to the applicant, I remember sitting there and being like, why is this in front of us right now? And it became apparent as we asked more questions as to why it was in front of us. But at the very beginning, it was me and my family want to fish and golf and have my friends. It was the shared amenities. And then it, it became the well, shared amenity. Well, so the, the, the conditional use permit was because the cabins weren't dwelling units. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And the a use permit was the only way that they could have cabins that weren't dwelling units. Same thing as the Yule property on County Road 68 that got a special use permit to be able to do the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Should have done another LPS <laughs> and never develop, only develop what they wanted. I'd be okay if we just sit there for a minute and all courses all together. <laughs> So I, I think I, I want to describe what I think I heard, and you can all tell me if I'm correct or not. 
um, that there is not a prohibition on private clubs necessarily, but there's maybe a different review process for that versus something that might be more publicly accessible. And that in the outdoor recreation use category, there's a focus on public benefit that includes some portion of public access um, or public other public benefit, but not fully accessing the rules. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think I'm okay with that. Okay. I mean, fundamentally, I'm uncomfortable with these private clubs, and, yeah. but you know, that's just a class additive more than anything else. And I, I do appreciate what Brad and Andy are saying. You know, how can, how can you force these people to open up their properties? It's the same conversation we've had at the PDR board. How do you, how do you say to a rancher, hey, we're giving this money, but you got to let people come recreate? It's just problematic. All that fishing along the end, I get access to now. And the Well, that kind of gets back to what Jay is saying. But when the use fee is unattainable by 99% of the public, you've accomplished nothing and you've basically just given people a workaround. So why even do it in the first place? What's your intent? But I do think there should be some form of exaction. Great. That's very helpful. Um, you do that for land. Mm -hmm. So land, fee, and lieu. Okay. Um, still on uses and stagecoach. Um, going back maybe specifically to stagecoach. Um, encouraging a neighborhood commercial center. The location has not been defined, but again, in that in the north area. Um, and then encouraging multifamily residential. Um, for the performance standards, we are requiring that in order to take advantage of the items within the overlay, you have to join the special district um, for encouraging of utilities. Um, that sidewalks or trail connections are required. Does not need to be a paved sidewalk, but that there needs to be some kind of pedestrian connectivity um, that's included. Um, similar to Hayden, um, level of service on county roads cannot be changed. And if it, if it does change through the, um, the transportation study, mitigation measures will be required. We have also incorporated some design standards. So this is new. This would be totally different for the county and um, eager for your feedback, um, but some specific design standards. So we've identified roof pitch. So in terms of thinking about what is a character and stagecoach, um, we're saying that pitched roofs are allowed, but flat roofs are not. Um, there's some- uh, You're gonna run into problems. Right? Yeah, yeah. We, there's some material standards. Uh, we have some standards related to parking locations. So the idea of putting parking behind the buildings as opposed to the thing you see right when you um, when you drive through. There needs to be some public spaces available. So that might be a plaza, it might be a park. Um, and then some requirements related to landscaping um, and some firewise um, aspects related to that landscaping. Um, so I'm going to stop there and see what comments. <laughs> <laughs>
to be stated this in their land use guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and if we're talking about stagecoach, Stella has a very stringent architecture yeah. review committee yeah. standard. So, you know, do we want to be like imposing additional and perhaps conflicting standards? I personally am very not in favor. Well, for one, yeah. I'm not in favor of any of the colors that people choose. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it says it. It's not on individual homes, right? Correct. That's totally different. Like, if I want to get a final lot and set the build a 500 stagecoach and then pass the architectural committee, it just doesn't count. Yeah, but. Why do we care if people have flat roofs in a subdivision? Character of community. What's wrong with flat roofs? I mean, no. I don't have character. Who defines character? I don't get it. If I saw a flat roof, I would think I was living in taps. Let me let me give you guys. Right. Well, you also said that Urban Street has over uh, only has three percent flat roofs. Rest of it's rest of it's um. History, so what I argued about with the subject with the comments around the corner because they want to do all flat roofs and it's out of character. Let me give you guys one, two examples that are very different that might make you think about this differently. On the one case, those of us that either live in the city or are familiar with it, their design guidelines frequently require pitched roofs, even though that's not very mountain modern today because everything's always mountain modern in the code until it's not anymore. So, <laughs> mountain. Mountain modern in the 90s was to have pitched roofs and that's the grand. And now no one wants to do pitched roofs and everyone's asking for a variance for it. So that's one type of uh, design guidelines that you guys are probably fearful of is something that goes out of date or accidentally creates something we don't want. Another kind of design guideline is for example, not allowing metal um, accessory buildings that are placed down without foundations. That's another type of design guideline. And that might be something to where you're saying, well, stagecoach is a bit denser than the rest of the county. It might need certain design guidelines to prevent a particular negative impact that we don't want. So that's something to think about as far as what these design guidelines are. Maybe this entire list is much too strict, but there might be some that you guys actually can think of that you would like to see or things that you would specifically like to prohibit. Good point. No context boxes. <laughs> or birds. <laughs> This is an example of what an overlay can do. And I think we're hearing your feedback. I think I think even when we um, drafted um, these design standards, I had a couple of you in mind, actually, but I was like, <laughs> are absolutely going to hate this, but this is the kind of direction that we need. This is typically the kind of stuff you would see in an overlay. Um, really? Roof designs? Yeah. yeah. That's yes. what the city does, yeah. for better or worse. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and yeah, let's get us out of the county. We have a really dumb development, and we're going to start to see more development, and now it's the opportunity and the time to talk about the direction we want to go in. Um, my main concern is if we're looking to provide affordable housing, you know, I would be fearful of putting too many restrictions that could prohibit the cost, um, yeah. you know, on, on that development. But um, I think that design standards are typically appropriate what you would see in these targeted growth areas. 
But most of the growth areas, the higher density developments are going to be within a subdivision. Correct. A formed a you know homeowners association with design review guidelines yeah. and, and mm -hmm. that particular yeah. subdivision is leave it up to the, to the table when they go through the permitting process. I don't think it's the county's responsibility to dictate what you know our just is you know planning and zoning and land use. Mm -hmm. Um leave it to the subdivision to come if they want more modern modern that's that's their decision. They want flat roofs. No, that's yeah. Look at the difference between Alpine Mountain Ranch and, and Catamount Ranch. Alpine Mountain Ranch lots are selling at three million dollars. Catamount Ranch at a million and a half. Do you know why? Architectural review. Catamount does not allow any flat roofs. Alpine does. Hmm. Just the perfect example right now. You know, flat roofs are all yeah. the I know, and in twenty yeah. years, everybody's going to say, "And I know what year that was built." Yeah. <laughs> Architectural review is at why Indiana can offset Alpine Mountain Ranch, but they incentivize versus the um, the you know, <laughs> right? For, for that, that wasn't a bad example. <laughs> so, so, one of the big reasons. So, I think what we're hearing is no material, no roof pitch, none of these kind of more specific. So, uh, it's kind of like maybe like add no comments boxes. You know, that's that's that needs to add up somewhere. We we will be talking it's about that. So What's that? Long time just um, do you want to have any regulations relative to parking location and encouraging parking behind buildings, or is that also kind of too far? Is it something that can be encouraged versus required? Because site design is specific sites sometimes, and where things go, you don't have much choices. Can there be incentives for it versus penalization against it? Yeah, and sometimes then, that pushes the. I mean, that, like, like, look at um, what's the project the affordable housing on the. Anyway, sometimes having the parking spaces behind the building pushes them into having to get a variance on the setback, and now they have to have a building basically on the road. development it is so out of context with the nature of that area the character of the space especially when it's serviced by other municipalities that have you know tax bases in place i i just i have a real problem with some of the vision that's being promoted towards stagecoach and i think it's completely out of context for the area does, does this make any sense yeah. at all would it make more sense to mandate, strong word, that the development actually develops covenants in a nature way, 
And then the minimums are in those covenants as opposed to in here. The the problem with mandating thing, we have this interesting thing in our code from previous developments where we mandated a bunch of things in a development agreement to be in the covenants. And theoretically, they would have ended up in the covenants, but then we say we're not responsible for enforcing those things in the covenants, but then we have a development agreement that says they're supposed to be in the covenants. So what happens if they later take them out of the covenants? Or do we decide have to that enforce, they don't care about them anyway. Do we have don't to enforce it? those standards that we just said we aren't enforcing because they're not in the covenants uh, anymore? It's Simbo Lakes, six, seven, eight, <laughs> nine. There's covenants, but no enforcement. So it's, but can't you, can you mandate an HOA though? Well, I think them? that's probably the least historic route county thing we could do, perhaps. Yeah. But it sounds like what you guys are saying is you're you're not necessarily opposed to things like sidewalks and trails that might in that might result in certain types of designs like street facing buildings, but you don't want to specifically mandate the actual design features. You want the developer to come up with what's best for their development based on yeah. some of the things that we require as just basic elements. Is I that, think is that right. what you're hearing? I think basically, yeah, functionality, like okay. basic functionality, what would be considered basic infrastructure to have a humane living environment that we're looking for, you know, like the walkability elements and the bike stuff. I'm I'm a little surprised none of these flies that because it seems like a lot of bike parking, but I love it. I'm good um, that. There's actually something did we I think we put that in there somewhere actually that they would have to do some bike parking related it's to that. It's not in this version. It's in, it's in, uh, yeah, I actually. The bike parking is. I didn't need bicycle parking. We could. The bike parking is so easy. Bike trails are so hard. Bike parking with these. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, I hear you a lot. Yeah, but I mean, that's talking so so function not design is what what we want. Electric vehicle readiness is basically I think the way that the terminology is, and I think it's coming from the other. It's going to be amended. Or do you really want to get wild here when you start mandating heating systems? Yes. Or what do you think? I think that's more appropriate for the building code. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Good job. So we'll pull back quite a bit on the design standard piece um, in the next version of Watson. Anything else on Hayden or Stagecoach? I feel like we've beaten that horse to death. That's the same guy. Okay. <laughs> it, it, I don't need horses. <laughs> Sorry, but for that experience. Um, all right, so West Cleveland Springs is our last tier two. We're so close, y'all. Um, so location is the yellow um, circle here. So like, you know, exactly what it means west of, of Steamboat Springs. Uh, the dimensions, again, similar to Hayden. We've tried to mirror what is in the city's codes relative to residential, commercial, and industrial. And so we've taken um, existing dimensions from the Steamboat Springs Code and, and included that here for these uses. Um, from a use perspective, secondary dwelling units are permitted, and we're encouraging uh, the neighborhood commercial uses consistent with the master plan. For the performance standards, um, same standards in terms of access, level of service provided for you that we have to pay them. Um, same thing on the preservation of open space corridors as well. Uh, difference is that sidewalks are required because the city requires sidewalks. And so that's one of the differences between the scope overlay and the overlay. 
Um, and then we have a number of proposed design standards that are a little bit more. So, <laughs> Flat roofs are okay here. So, uh, what are your thoughts on, on the design standards here? Is it the same direction as for stagecoach that gets too much? <laughs> well, keep, keep in mind that unlike stagecoach so keep in mind that unlike stagecoach this is likely to be annexed and so we don't want to we don't want to design a lot of things that are completely in conflict with the city's code so some of the design standards we might want to mirror if you guys feel appropriate um, or you could say, well, we think the city should get rid of their pitched roof standards, so we're going to take that one out and make them deal with it when they annex it. Um, <laughs> I just for fun. I, I'm just I'm just throwing that out. But that's general. That's what these are coming from. In this case, is that they are standards from the city's code that might result in future annexation and lack of um, nonconformities. Okay, so in the horrible event that this would not get annexed. I mean, the constitution is like, like we would want to have some form of standard in that case. Yeah, yes, absolutely. If that's what you feel. <laughs> to the city, to the city's codes. We also, but it also, but it also may end up being annexed sometime down the road, even if it's not annexed. Right now, I mean, the possibility exists that it will never get annexed. We had an and interesting to form some metropolitan districts, yeah. right. and, and go ahead and develop that. Do we want to tie ourselves to the city's codes? We actually had a really interesting. This is another food for thought. Um, Rebecca made an interesting comment. She's the director at the city. For those who don't know, she said she she did have a concern that. If these standards are significantly lower than the city, it might disincentivize people from wanting to annex to the city. Right. And so, and that was actually my thinking with Hayden potentially is to incentivize them to annex to Hayden. You just make them have sidewalks and then they don't have to have sidewalks in Hayden. So they would annex first and we don't have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So as another hypothetical, keep that in mind with these standards. Um, and what level you want them to be relative to the city? Well, any time. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just to say, sidewalks stand out to me. I mean, my neighbor, I live in Silverspur, there's no sidewalks there. Yeah, they got annexed. Taxpayers are going to play the sidewalks in Silverspur. No, other than the middle of Steamboat, and I don't have a sidewalk. Oh, you'll get them eventually. <laughs> well, there is one, but we don't maintain it. Steamboat. But I mean, all of the terms. Now, and the annexation never occurs. It's generally easier to relax a standard. And so I'm not sure that fear that we might want some. I mean, we need to standards. We can lower our standards. Exactly. <laughs> Usually, people aren't going to be as upset about that than if you, know, you start out. I mean, it's like the school teacher. She starts out strict and you know, then everybody pays attention and then backs off a little. Um, if we had to do that, but I agree with what Michael said. If our standards are not 
um, at the level of steam boats, there is a you know disincentive not to annex. Maybe it was a really thought provoking comment that I had not thought of until she said it, and I was like, oh, <laughs> no, no, there's that's a very clear problem. I think Jay definitely has something to add. It's something you're you're not. The city's mm -hmm. going to require the community to the surface as they bring water into that plant. So, does this all just fall into the update to the Westmore area plant? I mean, it will so, be discussed and rolled over. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of feel like it's not incredibly relevant if things move as they're intending to move and supposed to move. If it doesn't, it can be emergent. If not, if yep. things do not move along as they're supposed to, it might become more important. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, is there a question of <clears throat> could uh, the development of that scale even be considered if it's not being asked? Are there? Are there <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a financial budget. Okay. It's time to measure district costs. He says that. Yeah. Well, I I say it again. Be, We've had four lot and six lot subdivisions that the city has said, no way, we will not annex them. We will not even consider it. That's wrong. The applicants did not want, they didn't even ask the city. They said, oh, we don't meet the continuity requirements. We can't when they could have. I, I could have swore Fox, <laughs> Fox Creek was told, no, they would no. not be annexed. Um, no. same, there was another one that was the same answer. They never asked. And so on a smaller scale, I, I conceptually see how it can work, but on a larger scale, it seems like it's a little more problematic. Something of the scale of a ground ranch versus a hot street. What requiring annexation? Requiring annexation. I mean, I, I don't know how you would even consider Brown Ranch if it wasn't annexed. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's nine o'clock. Um, yes, and so um, we still we can try to wrap this up. I think we're getting really good direction on what we should be doing with the design standards specifically. Um, again, this is the first crack at you seeing this section and knowing that we're going to be bringing this back to you. Um, so there'll be more time to pick this apart at another time. <laughs> um, Jessica, yeah. you want to wrap us up? I'm going to wrap us up on our tier threes mm -hmm. here. So tier threes are identified in the master plan, um, Hans Peak, Steamboat Lake, Clark, Milner, Heberg, uh, Thomas. And at least you didn't say Yampa. Yampa. So. <laughs> Down there in Yampa. You do say that every once in a while. <laughs> so um, within tier three, uh, dimensions are based off of location. And we have kind of a, a key question for you all re relative to that. Of, should we be treating some of these areas that have historically been platted um, differently than the other tier three areas? Um, each would, we would want to encourage a neighborhood commercial use as well as a mix of residential uses. 
Performance standards wise, um, we have identified again a public benefit requirement for new development um, that there be some kind of services from either the county or special districts. Um, so understanding that these are not likely um, anywhere near the possibility of municipal utility expansion, right? So it's, it's really special districts in the county. When a special district exists, they do need to connect to one um, in order to move forward with, with the development. Um, sidewalks would not be required, but some kind of pedestrian connections need to be provided. And um, particularly in these areas, wanting to make sure we're not impacting the critical ranching and agricultural lands. Um, we do have the airport overlay that is no different than exists today. So I'm going to skip that and really focus on our questions, which um, really focuses in our on are there any standards that are, are missing or are important for these tier three areas? And do we think we should be treating the, the kind of prehistoric subdivisions um, differently than the non-profit areas? I'll help us out and say staff definitely thinks that there should be um, a difference between the historic subdivisions um, and the, the unplatted. Um, so with that, um, unless you feel differently, um, I think we can all agree they're, they're two very different animals, but there is some, they share similarities, which is why they're considered tier three. But um, the fact that some of these historic subdivisions have, you know, either water and sewer like Pittsburgh, Milner with sewer, and um, Hans Peak. <laughs> we'll just leave Nothing. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> Disgruntled population. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what would it mean for a place like Topolis? I mean, what does this mean? What could happen at Topolis under this new set of So the example I gave to Planning Commission last week when I was prepping them for this conversation would be when the gas station came in. That's historically been there. It's a non-conforming use what we were having a really difficult time how to process that application and try to justify it based on our master plan. And we processed it under our older master plan, which said no commercialization of the AF zone areas, right? So now we've built in that Toponis is considered a tier three where a use like that could be appropriate under specific standards and if it was meeting a certain need. Right. So like maybe someone could have a mini storage unit out there in the tops. Potentially, yes. If that's some a use that you would want to consider in that area. I think we would define neighborhood commercial uses. And typically a storage unit's not going to be included in that. It might be a small general store. But it could be a cafe. It could be a cafe, it could yeah. be a gas station, but we would put some guardrails there. Yeah. <laughs> What if someone wanted, it's kind of a mix, wanted to put in a trailer port? Uh, a what? Let's say a trailer port, you know, put in a mobile home park. Mm -hmm. Infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I mean, infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, I mean, if that's something, I think that there could be a need for that, it could be appropriate, but it's an infrastructure issue. There's not the infrastructure to support. The 
That doesn't mean there's not an engineering solution is everybody good with um, staff drafting and reworking uh, these sections? And I, have, I have a question about the yes. overlays, not just for the places like Toponus that are like, what do you I mean? Like, what's the circle around Toponus? I mean, yes, no, no, no. Okay, so, but even if you're talking about like like Peberg or Milner, yep. mm -hmm. would the would it match only would the overlay just match the platted lots, or would it? be like what if somebody wanted to do something that was just outside that so, area good, good, good question and i know you like that's just bugging me you know so we deliberately did not define these areas if you recall for that very reason to allow discretion and flexibility for these areas um we do have to put some bookends on that you know of somebody saying hey this is a tier three and they're trying to propose something that is totally not fitting the standards and a neighborhood commercial as an example and and what we're going to define that as um so it is not defined on a map like the other uh like tier two areas even for like pittsburgh phippsburg or yeah. milner that actually have platted lots yeah Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. They're much. The thing is, between those three are much easier to define than the other ones because Toponus is an intersection, basically. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't even argue the center of it is in the intersection. Yeah, no, so, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and we could. I mean, that's something we're going to be taking a look at. I mean, also you have to consider with um, you have your service areas. So. We're saying you have to be hooked into or have some sort of um, infrastructure, and if there, if it, if it's available, yeah, yeah. So more than likely, that's going to define the area. And keep in mind too, overlays just like any, it's it would be a zoning amendment to increase the boundaries. So if someone had a parcel west of Phippsburg that was some nice rectangle and wanted to grid more streets. And the county felt that was appropriate it would be the decision making process would be considering that through a rezoning of the overlay to extend expand it over that parcel and potentially the underlying zoning as well to allow for the high density and then environmental health would have to say that they have to expand this the administrative boundary of their service area so there's a lot of controls on that but at least there's a box you can draw around it clear as mud yeah. yes. all right yes all right <laughs> Um, we wanted to really quickly talk through our next steps, which will be our last slide. Um, so we're going to go back and update the uh, draft language based off of the direction tonight. As I mentioned at the beginning, this overlay piece, we're not going to come back to the final language. We're going to kind of combine that with what we're doing in module two relative to the zone districts. So um, we're going to really be working through the solar the uh, introduction and the agencies so that we can provide that um, to you pretty quickly and, and potentially moving into uh, the adoption cycle uh, as early as late August to early September. My question to you all is, are you comfortable with the agency intro and solar for us, for staff to make your uh, suggested edits and putting that out for public comment? Or do you need to see that again and have another work session to discuss? <laughs> Andy's like, no. no. Get it out there. All right, all right. And then uh, the idea- You want to get it to us first before you put it out there. No, that's, that's, what, that's the question. Oh. I have two parts. 
One was get it out first and then take it to the public for internal review, our review, but not meet. Yeah, I mean, she could circulate it by email and say, hey, if you have any That's kind of where I was going. You're yeah. part of the Significant objections prior to activate or else in the press. Exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 And, and then, then I agree with the not meat part. That would yeah. be okay. Hear back from anybody about it. Maybe give us at least a day or two. But I feel like we need to be on a pretty reasonably fast clip with all of this. And I think we've had a lot of good yeah. discussion. And then my final question is: um, We intended to have separate adoption meetings. Um, and would you would your preference be that we schedule the next discussion before adoption as a joint meeting? Or so in a joint meeting, planning commission would adopt, and we the commissioners right after that would ratify and adopt at, at the same at meeting. The same meeting. Yeah. Yeah. It would That's be more great. efficient. Um, you know, um, rather than having two separate meetings sure. and then you're all hearing the same thing. Right. Um, and we can schedule that. My, my recommendation would be we would schedule it as a work session slash adoption. That if we were able to get to the point where we were all comfortable with the changes, we could adopt it as written, or if there's like still a lot of work. But this wouldn't include the the the, the overlay thing. This is just for that first part, right? Correct. Right. The first three sections. Yeah. Why would you? Yeah, and, and we've done we've done that before with other and, and I'd be comfortable doing that personally with what we have in front of us with these three sections. That's more than likely not going to be the case as we move forward into the other modules because that will be so more in the end, left. Do the joint adoption, <laughs> then go into a work section on other modules. It's really what you're saying. Um no, no. no. <laughs> why not? Um, I'm saying that we would have the option, we would advertise it, yeah. so we have to consider that as a work, work session slash adoption. Okay. So therefore, we have an opportunity to discuss it, the, the draft, the final draft, make tweaks if we needed to, if, you know, if you had major heartburn about something, then we would have to schedule such separate, uh, separate adoption. Why would you meet your heartburn? You're already sending them out. We're already reviewing them. I don't want to speak for any one of you. Okay. <laughs> Just when you said adoption workshop, I had it the other way around. Adoption workshop and the next step. We right. have another, we have a final adoption where we adopt the thing in its entirety at the end. So it's not the end all be all. This is that's kind of a role. There's more tracks out of it. Is that yeah. Role and approval. All right, thank you. So I think the answer was yeah. Okay, great. We have our marching orders. Thank you. Are you doing? An, you're not doing an administrative. Uh, no, we do not have a planning commission Good. next week. No, so you, oh, we need that. Okay. You guys are doing a really great job. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, really really good. Good. Yes. Thank you everybody. Thanks for clogging through. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 Why do you think?